And we are on air here at Bamfor Racing Radio. It is Thursday night, October the 20th, and uh, we are ready for our Bamfor Racing Homestead NASCAR Weekend Preview, along with our Hot Topic Sound Off. Uh, joining me for tonight's show is our co-host, and that is Jay Huseman. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, you mentioned it, and I, I've done it a couple of times tonight. Think homestead, think end of the year. It's not quite the end of the year, but we are coming up on it. And so with that, I know we don't have many shows left. I want to take this opportunity real quick to thank you so much for the opportunity that you give myself and all the other team members here at Fan for Racing um, the opportunity to do, to, to write, to visit tracks, to give our opinions. Uh, you're pretty liberal with that, so thank you very much, Sharon. <laughs> Well, we appreciate each and every one of our Fan for Racing crew members, and uh, thank you for taking the time to do that, Jay. I, I do appreciate it, and uh, hopefully we'll be back next year to do this once again. <clears throat> okay. I certainly hope, uh, for, hope so. Uh, I know I've only been doing it for four years, but I've been having an absolute blast. Oh, good. I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, because uh, one thing I do like about our crew is we have a lot of passionate race fans uh, that are involved uh, with the show and with writing on the website, and uh, uh, I love the passion. So uh, definitely uh, have enjoyed the last four years with you and uh, looking forward to hopefully four more. (laughs) Well, I'm game at this point. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's uh, talk about our show here tonight. Uh, In this episode, we are going to start with some short track news and some upcoming races uh, happening this weekend. Uh, And we'll give you a quick ARCA West update. That's the only series in the ARCA Menards uh, umbrella that's racing this weekend. So we'll let you know when that next race is coming up and, and a couple of tidbits there. Uh, but we're also, in the first half hour, we're going to preview the NASCAR Truck Series playoff elimination race that's going to take place this weekend at Homestead Miami Speedway. And Jay is absolutely right. This is not the last race of the season. We're so used to that being the track that we go to for the season finale. Uh, but it, there are two other races uh that will take place, two other locations uh, that NASCAR will be racing at before uh, this uh, the season finale that will be at Phoenix Raceway in November. We'll race at Homestead Miami Speedway this weekend, and then Martinsville Speedway is on the schedule for next weekend before we get to Phoenix for those season finales. Uh, next, we'll close out our segment uh, of the preview show with a preview of both the NASCAR Xfinity Series and the Cup Series playoff races at Homestead Miami as well. Then stay tuned for our NASCAR Hot Topic uh, Sound Off discussion with our Fan for Racing crew. We've got a full house tonight. In addition to Jay, we have uh, Andy Lasky and Mike Orzel coming on board. Uh, so that's always entertaining, and uh, we'll look for, forward to that happening uh, during our third half hour, uh, and actually that's probably going to be more like an hour and a half uh, conversation. So uh, we hope everybody will stay tuned for that as well. Uh, so, Jay, with that, let's go ahead and get into some of the uh, short track racing news here tonight. 
Well, and there is still some, again, a lot of it does pertain to season wrapping up or plans for next year. I know one of the ones uh, we've been watching with the super late models, we are now moving to the All-American 400 uh, in Nashville. And as you can find on Racing America, there is more than 40 teams entered for the All-American 400 already. Yes, this is another big event. We've been talking to the about the uh, Winchester 400. Well, now it's the All-American 400. And uh, with 40 entries, you know that's going to be uh, another huge event uh, in the late model category. Now, this race will take place. It will be top drivers from all around the country. They'll be competing for a guitar from Nashville on October the 30th. So, uh, again, mark this one on your calendars. It will take place at Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway. Uh, It's a crown jewel event that will once again draw a star-studded field uh, from super late model drivers seeking that coveted, and it is coveted, uh, guitar trophy. Uh, so 17 states are represented, along with Cole Butcher from Nova Scotia, Canada, that will be taking uh, part in that race. And there's some other big marquee drivers from the Super Late Model Racing Divisions this year. Jay? Yeah, you're going to have Bubba Pollard, uh, Hunter Robin. Whoops. Okay, Hunter Robbins, Stephen Nassie, Casey Johnson, Derek Thorne. Luke Fenhouse, Augie Grill, and Jake Garcia, uh, just to name a few. Pollard joins Matt Craig and Casey Roderick as former All-American 400 winners. So some tough competition. Uh, you might see some fenders exchanged. I, I saw another clip of that from the uh, Winchester there and the uh, ensuing discussion about uh, bringing parts to another team's uh, pit stall. That was kind of interesting, but... Uh, I don't think uh, that's come to an end either because I, I got to see this one firsthand a few years back. That definitely happens at these short tracks. Exactly. Uh, now there's some other drivers uh, that are hometown hopefuls that were entered in this race as well. Um, there We're talking about Music City drivers such as uh, Michael House, Willie Allen, Dylan Fetchko, uh, Jackson Boone will all be representing Tennessee fans in, attend- in attendance. And then we've got several drivers from the Arkham Midwest Tour that will make the trip south to uh, Nashville uh, for that All-American win- weekend. And some of the standouts are three-time series champion T- Casey Johnson, 2021 Slinger National winners Luke Benhouse, uh, Austin Nason, Gabe Summers, Michael Bilderback. Brad Keith and Tristan Swanson are all listed as competitors. And then there will be some drivers that are making a long haul from out west uh, for this race as well. Uh, That includes Colorado's Jace Hansen, Cody Dempster, along with California's Derek Thorne and Buddy Shepard are all entered in this year's event. So, again, that will take place on Sunday, October the 30th. And if you want to know more information, you can go to Nashville Fairground Speedway dot racing. Uh, pretty cool. There's a dot racing now, Jay. <laughs> yeah, and running running down the full list, a couple of, two others that I, I think need to give a shout out to here. Uh, Daniel Dyke, who just competed in the Arkham and Ard series, finished second in the championship, 
and Carson Cavapo picking up that win at North Wilkesboro. Uh, two other big names going to be tough competition. Uh, unbelievable list of entries here for the All-American 400 at Nashville Fairgrounds. It certainly is, and uh, we're going to watch a lot of these drivers uh, in that race. Uh, I see uh, Logan Bearden. I see Jake Finch. Uh, I mean, like we said, over 40 drivers already entered, and that list uh, could grow even more. Uh, William Sawilich, uh he's on this list. Uh, a, a lot can happen between now and October 30th, so we'll try to keep you updated there. Uh, with that big uh, All-American 400 uh, on October the 30th. Uh, any other uh, news here that you think we ought to hit on? Well, I was trying to, for some reason, the one I wanted, go ahead. I know for those that like dirt racing, uh, the Midwest, there's a Midwestern trio of races coming to the World of Outlaws late model series. There are six races still left in their 2021 season. Uh, you can find out more about that over at Race Pro Weekly, and uh, they give you all the details that you need to know about that. Uh, and it's just uh, dirt.raceproweekly.news. So check that out, and you'll have all you need to know about those uh, six races left for the World of Outlaws. And I did did have something. I know when we, we talked about that earlier in the day, um, this weekend is going to be a little bit uh, tough, if you will, as they will. The World Outlaws Late Model Series will honor Rick Eshelman's legacy. He's an announcer. Uh, okay. I talked about a couple of weeks ago and taken his life. Um, Ruben Meyerless, Ben Shelton, and Brett Emmerich and James Essex. Uh, and Essex actually announces for the Lucas Oil Series. Uh, you know, put that aside, coming together to honor Rick Eshelman. That is such, so great. But I know it's going to be a tough weekend. Yes, yes, uh, it surely will. That's still uh, very recent news, and a lot of people uh, feel that uh, loss. So I'm glad to see that they're honoring him there. Uh, now another news story here that I want to make sure everybody's aware of is uh, Track Enterprises and Southern Super Series form a strategic partnership, and they announced earlier uh, yesterday that they formed that strategic partnership for their future. Uh, It comes out of Macon, Illinois, and um, the two groups will help manage the super late model pavement racing tour that is operated in the southeastern part of the U.S. since 2013. Bob Sargent the president of Track Enterprises, and Tim Bryant, the owner and promoter out at uh, Five Flag Speedway and the Southern Super Series, released a joint statement regarding that partnership. The alliance will see Bryant and current series officials continue to work with the series for the foreseeable future. So um, it's uh, pretty cool to see that uh, partnership forming up. And this is one I was trying to get pulled up, wouldn't pull up for me earlier today for some reason, but uh, is some big news when it comes to the super late models we've been talking about. And it looks like, excuse me, <clears throat> kind of like what we see with the Sioux Chief Showdown in the Arkham Menard series. Uh, it says plans call for each of the three regional tours to publish a 10 to 15 race schedule of events once again. 
and then each regional tour will host national series events, likely three from each region, with the 10th and final national series championship event scheduled as part of the All-American 400 weekend at Nashville Fairgrounds, um, which would be Sunday, November 5th in 2023. Now that's kind of the uh, planned idea, um, but so you can see that they're combining all three. You can run just the national series events or compete for your own regional series as well. So I think that's a great mixture they're planning for there. Yes, it is. Uh, uh, Track Enterprises actually manages uh, the racing promotions in Macon, Illinois, Speedway, uh, Lincoln in Illinois Speedway, and the Nashville, Tennessee Fairgrounds Speedway. So uh, this um, Track Enterprises promotes, promotes races that features some of the nation's most popular touring series, including the Camping World Truck Series, the Arkham Menard Series, USAC SRX, Dirt Car, UMP, World of Outlaws, Power Eye Racing, and the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series. So um, that's, uh, the, that's a partnership that includes a lot of the series that we watch, Jay. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if Track Enterprises is full up uh, partners, but I know Bob Sargent also has a lot to do with at least the Snowball Derby, if not uh, Five Flags mm-hmm. Speedway there in Pensacola as well. Well, Tim Bryant uh, uh, is the promoter out there at uh, Five Flags Speedway. So uh, Bob Sargent, I think, does have, you know, uh, he's certainly involved as well. But, yeah, this is, this is just really, really uh, big news. I'll have to see if we can get uh, Tim Bryant back on the show. That's what I like to see is this uh, promoting of the grassroots racing. Um, And you you mentioned it. It it ties also to the Lucas Oil Dirt Late Model Series. Uh, Again, you you don't separate that. It's racing. You never know where that next superstar driver is going to come from. And giving that opportunity to get exposure and run these different events uh, help elevating drivers no matter what they run in. That's right. That's right. Okay, now uh, we didn't. We're run out of time here for now, but I do want to encourage everybody uh, to visit some of the sites that we've mentioned here tonight. And in addition to those sites, uh, you want to check out Flow Racing and and Racing at Map TV as well. Uh, there's always a uh, steady flow of racing that takes place. Now, the next race for the Arkham Menard Series West is actually going to be at Phoenix Raceway. So that's going to be the season finale. They had uh, their next to the last race out at uh, the Bull Ring in Las Vegas last weekend. Friday, November 4th, they'll be racing out at Phoenix Raceway at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and that will be available for live streaming on Flow Racing. There will also be radio coverage on MRN and Sirius XM channel 391 online and 981, uh, as well as ArcaRacing.com. So we'll have more about that uh, in another week or so, but uh, that will be it for the Arca Menard Series uh, at the same time that uh, all three of our NASCAR Top Series will be ending their seasons and having their finales out of Phoenix that weekend as well. And that does make it a huge weekend for them, their championship weekend, but also being partnered up with the NASCAR Top 3 there at Phoenix Raceway. Uh, Again, for the past several years, that's where the championship weekend has been. 
to include the Arca Menards West Series. Um, tying into that is just a huge race weekend overall, uh, but big for the teams, drivers, and everybody else involved. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to go ahead and move on now to the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series. They're back on track this weekend for the Baptist Health 200 out at Homestead Miami Speedway. They'll be racing on Saturday, October the 22nd at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be televised on Fox Sports 1 starting at 12 noon, as well as radio coverage, MRN, and Sirius XM Channel 90. Uh, and uh, they'll be racing a distance of 201 miles over 134 laps. Uh, first two stages are 30 laps each. Stage one ends on lap 30, stage two on lap 60, and then you've got the final stage ending on the last lap, lap 134. What news do we have here in the truck series, Jay? Well, I see it as some great news. Max Gutierrez is going to make his fourth truck series start. The NASCAR Mexico Series driver, Max Gutierrez, will be making that fourth start in the series behind the wheel of the number 22 AM Racing Chevrolet this weekend at Homestead Miami Speedway. Now, Gutierrez made his track debut earlier, truck series debut, sorry, earlier this season at Charlotte Motor Speedway. He posted a 26th place finish. He went on to post two more starts coming at Nashville and Pocono, where he finished 8th and 21st, respectively. Now, the 19-year-old driver has expanded his resume as he also posted starts in the Arkham Menard series. He has a total of seven starts and has posted one top 10 here in 2022. Keep your eye on Max Gutierrez. Uh, he is a uh, Mexico champion and uh, definitely looking forward to seeing him back in the trucks this weekend. Uh, and as his career continues to progress, we've, we've, uh, it seems like he's following in the footsteps of drivers like uh, Daniel Suarez. So uh, kind of cool to see that happening. Okay, next up we have the make it or break it, one shot turn a spot in the championship four round. So right now the truck series uh, is ending their playoff round of eight at Homestead Miami Speedway this weekend. And when that race is over, four drivers will be in the championship race at Phoenix. So we're going to do a rundown of all eight drivers that are still contending, starting from the bottom up with the four drivers that are below that cut line right now. Okay, all right, I'll start? start with Granny. Yeah, I'll start with Grant Enfinger, uh, the driver of the number 23 GMS Racing Chevrolet. He's made five starts at Homestead, putting up one top five, three top tens, and one pole coming back in 2018. His average start is 7.6. Average finish is a little higher at 11.4. Now, Enfinger is looking to earn his spot in the championship four round for the second time in NASCAR Camping World Truck Series career as he did it in 2020. This one's a little surprising, but John Hunter Nemechek, he's driver of the number four Kyle Busch Motorsports Toyota. He's got four starts at Miami with one top five and two top tens. His average finish or average start also a 7.5 right there with him, but his average finish 8.8. Nemechek is looking to earn a spot in the championship four round for his second consecutive year in the Camping World Truck Series career, having done it last year, 2021. 
Okay. Well, both of those drivers are uh, going to be hungry for a win this weekend, but so are these two drivers. Uh, they're, they're also still below the cut line, but a lot can change. Let's start with Stuart Friesen, the driver of the number 52, Hallmar Friesen Toyota. It was five starts at Homestead. He has one top five, two top tens, and he has an average start of 11.2 with an average finish of 13.0. Now, Smith is, uh, of course, learning looking to earn that spot in the championship four round for the second time in his Camping World Truck Series career. He did race in the championship four in 2019. Christian Eckes, driver of the number 98 Thor Sport Racing Toyota, has two starts at the 1.5-mile track of Homestead. He has one top five and two top tens there. He also has an average start of 3.0 with an average finish of 5.5. Eckes, he's uh, looking to earn that spot in the championship for a round for the first time in his truck series career. So uh, with those stats, I think he might have a pretty good chance of doing that, Jay. That's what I was thinking looking at those stats. Uh, the, The advantage that the next drivers have is right now they're above the cut line in the event of points needed. We'll start with Ben Rhodes. He's driver of the number 99 Thor Sport Racing Toyota. He's got five starts at the track with one top 10 in 2018 and has a total of 45 laps led. The average start right there with everybody else, 7.8, but the average finish is 15.8. Now, Rhodes is looking to earn a spot in the championship four round for the second consecutive time in his NASCAR Camping World Truck Series career. He did it in 2021 and won the championship. So we'll see how that comes into play. Mm-hmm. Then you got one of the Smiths. He is. Uh, one of the Smiths, so I'll start with Zane Smith in the third spot. He's driver of the number 38 front row motorsports Ford, and has one start at the track coming back in 2020. Now he finished 37th after an incident early on lap 19. But Smith is still looking during a spot in the championship four round for the third straight season in his NASCAR Camping World Truck Series career, which started back in 2020, carrying through 2021. Okay, next up we have the top two drivers uh, going into Homestead, Miami this weekend. Uh, The first of those two are Chandler Smith. He's the driver of the number 18 Kyle Busch Motorsports Toyota, and he's making his Truck Series career track debut this weekend at Homestead. Now, of course, Smith, like all the others, wants to be in that championship four round. Uh, For him, it would be his first time uh, in his career to be a part of that championship four. Next up is the guy at the top and already clinched into the championship four. Uh, He probably is going to have the easiest day of all of the drivers uh, out at Homestead. He's the driver of the number 66 Thor Sport Racing Toyota. He has one start at Homestead Miami Speedway. That was in 2020. He did post a 10th place finish at that time. Uh, this is the first time in his career that he's qualified for the championship four round uh, in the Truck Series playoffs. So, uh, but he's the only driver, I believe, right now that has that victory that has clinched his spot. That's right. The racing could be real interesting because that does leave three spots available on point if we don't have one of those winner win the race. 
if they do, it's still two drivers on point. So that the point tracing is going to be very, very um, intense. Okay, let's talk about the playoff bubble because there's those four drivers that are below the cut line. Uh, let's uh, take a little closer look at them. Well, when we look at the, the standings following that second race in the round of eight, Talladega, they are tasked now with trying to make the championship four with just that one race to go. You mentioned Thor Sport Racing's time and Jeske won at Bristol in the round of eight opener. And then last uh, race was non-playoff driver Matt Benedetto snagging the win at Talladega. As I said, that leaves three spots up for grabs uh, here into this next playoff race. Chandler Smith and Zane Smith assume the second and third playoff positions respectively behind Majeski. The Thor Sport teammate to Ty Majeski, Ben Rhodes, is in that fourth and final transfer spot right now. He's only up three points, though, on teammate Christian Eckes in fifth. Behind Eckes is Halmar Friesen, Stuart Race, Halmar Friesen's Racing's Stuart Friesen, uh, in sixth is also three points below the cut line. And then Kyle Busch Motorsports, John Hunter Nemechek, minus five. And GMS Racing's Grant Enfinger in eighth at minus 29. Now keep in mind that because... Seriously tight. They they certainly are. Grant Enfinger, I mean, the only one that really is the win win at all costs. Uh, Everybody else could possibly go get in on points, but you don't want to have to depend on that. We know that. (laughs) We know that doesn't always work. Now, I mentioned this. uh, With Matt DiBenedetto, a non-playoff driver, winning that second race, at least two of the four championship four-round spots will be uh, filled by drivers transferring in on points. So that's why I say those points are going to be very, very tight. I would say so. Uh, In fact, it's wide open for the championship four-round. The series drivers will be back on track for their last race in the playoff round of eight out at Homestead Miami Speedway. With a win by uh, Matt Benedetto at Talladega, only one driver has secured their spot, and we've talked about it. That's uh, Ty Majeski with his win at Bristol Motor Speedway. The remaining seven playoff drivers will have to give it their all if they want a chance to compete for that 2022 title. So, um, again, Ty's the only driver that's clinched uh, his spot in that uh, championship four. But if there is a repeat winner or a win by a driver who cannot advance to the next round, uh, these other drivers could clinch by being ahead of the fourth winless driver in the standings. So uh, the same would hold true if a new win comes from among uh, the those drivers that those three drivers that are on top of the cut line, Chandler Smith, Zane Smith, or Ben Rhodes. Chandler Smith uh, would need 26 points, Zane Smith 38, and Ben Rhodes uh, has the deepest points that uh, is needed. That's 52 points. Uh, those drivers that are below the cut line, uh, they're only going to clinch if they get some help, meaning somebody has to have a really bad day that's on the top four, or uh, they're going to need to get that win to get in. Now, if there's a new winner uh, from Christian Eckes or another winless driver lower in the standings but still eligible to advance to the next round, uh, these drivers can uh, clinch by being ahead of the third winless 
driver in the standings. Again, Chandler Smith would need 29 points, Zane 41 points. The rest of the drivers will all need help. That's Ben Rhodes, Christian Eckes, Stuart Friesen, John Hunter Nemechek, or Grant Infinger. So, of course, all of those drivers can win with a win, and they will get in. Uh, we saw Christopher Bell do that in the Cup Series uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, that can happen here in the Truck Series. So uh, this is going to be a, a fun one to watch. It is indeed. And uh, just some quick stats here is that they've had the last couple weeks off. They head to action now Saturday, October 22nd at Homestead Miami Speedway for the Baptist Health 200. That'll be 1 p.m. on FS1, MRN, and Sirius XM Radio, part of the doubleheader. Uh, Homestead Miami Speedway has hosted 25 Camping World Truck Series races, produced 22 different race winners and 19 different race winners. Inaugural race on, 19, on March 17, 1996, uh, won by Dave Resendiz. I would not have gotten that one on the trivia question. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Kyle, Kyle Bush holds the record for most wins with three and laps led at 394. Matt Crafton, uh, also known uh, a known name at the track, has the most top tens with 12, most lead lap finishes with 16, and most laps completed at 2,721. So Crafton is uh, entered not in the playoffs, but one of the competitors to still keep your eye on as far as a non-playoff driver winning. Okay, let's go ahead and move on now then to our Xfinity Series. Uh, They also are racing this weekend. All three top series are racing this weekend. Uh, The Xfinity Series will race the Contender Boats 300 out at Homestead Miami Speedway on Saturday. Jay mentioned it. It's a doubleheader. Uh, Their race will take place at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, but will be on USA Network at 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so radio coverage is also on our MRN and Sirius XM NASCAR radio. Uh, they'll be racing a distance of 300 miles over 200 laps. First two stages, 45 laps each. Stage one ends on lap 45. Stage two on lap 90. And then the final stage is 110 laps ending on lap 200. So there's a lot to talk about here in the Xfinity Series. Well, and I can't say it's a guarantee, but it worked out. You win a race, you win a contract, as we got Josh Berry returning to Junior Motorsports in 2023. He was last weekend's Las Vegas winner uh, with Junior Motorsports, and it was announced he will return for the 2023 season. And have 52 series starts with the team, Barry has posted five victories, 17 top fives, and 32 top tens, claiming a a spot in the Xfinity Series playoffs in his first year of eligibility. He began with JRM back in 2010 with the team's legacy late model team, where he earned 94 victories. His victories with the late model team combined with his Xfinity Series wins has uh, has him sitting at 99 victories under Junior Motorsport. So... Good one to have coming back to the team. 
Yes, indeed. I like Josh Berry. And he's uh, he's already secured his spot in the next round now as well. So now we're going to scoop uh, the playoff field at Homestead, Miami. Uh, again, there are eight drivers, and any one of those drivers can make the trip to Victory Lane to clinch their spot in the final four. So uh, let's take a look at the playoff field for that South Florida track of Homestead, Miami. You want to start with Sam and Brandon? All right. Sam Mayer, a driver in the number one junior motorsports, also has a one by his name. It's his first Homestead, Miami Xfinity Series start uh, this weekend. Brandon Jones, however, driver in the number 19 Joe Gibbs Racing Toyota, uh, has seven starts at Homestead, Miami Speedway. He's posted two top fives and five top tens. He has also posted runner-up finishes in the last two races at the track as an average start of 8.3 and an average finish of 8.1. Okay, next up we have A.J. Allmendinger. He's the driver of the number 16 Colleg Racing Chevrolet. He has three starts at uh, Homestead, Miami, with one top five and one top ten finish. He's also led 48 laps and has an average start of 30.3 with an average finish of 13.0. Austin Hill, he's the driver of that number 21, Rich Childress Racing Chevrolet. He's posting his first Homestead Miami Xfinity Series start this weekend as well. Then we got Justin Algar. He's a driver of the number seven junior motorsport Chevrolet. Has 13 starts at the track. He's posted two top tens. Average start is 15.0. Average finish is 17.9. Uh, his best finish at the track was six, but that was back in 2016. And another driver making his uh, inaugural trip, Xfinity Series trip to Miami Homestead, that would be Ty Gibbs, driver of the number 54 Joe Gibbs Racing Toyota. But I don't think that'll be a matter. He seems to be pretty good no matter where he goes, even if it's the first time. That is so true. Next up, we have our top two drivers, starting with Noah Gregson, driver of the number nine for Junior Motorsports and the Chevrolet. He has four starts at Homestead, Miami, posting three top fives and three top tens. He's led 208 laps in his four starts. He also has an average start of 12.0 and an average finish of 11.3. Now, Josh Berry, he's the driver of the number eight for Junior Motorsports Chevrolet and heads into this weekend's race with two starts at the Miami track, posting one top ten finish, and that was last year. So, uh, again, uh, this is going to be a fun one to watch. Those are your eight uh, competitors. Uh, so it's go big or go home. It is, and there could be a shakeup in the standings with that kind of mentality. Uh, we talked about junior motorsports. Josh Perry hit the jackpot there at Las Vegas with his one uh, win, but not everyone else left Sin City feeling so lucky. Uh, one driver in particular took a hit in the standings, and that was A.J. Allmendinger. Prior to last weekend's race at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, Allmendinger entered the first race in the round of eight as the number two seed in the playoffs. Now, after a 22nd place finish, he heads to Homestead, Miami as the number six seed. Now, currently, the four drivers above the line, Josh Berry, Noah Gregson, Ty Gibbs, and Justin Algar. Below the cut line, though, 
is uh, the fifth seed, Austin Hill, and he's 15 points back. Mentioned A.J. Allmendinger at 16 points back. And then the final two spots in the round eight are drivers Brandon Jones at minus 27 and Sam Merritt minus 36. And with two races left to go, neither one of them is completely out of it as far as points, but those are some steep hills to climb uh, in just two races. Yeah, you got a matter of two points right there at the cut line. Uh, Justin Algauer and Austin Hill are actually tied in points, uh, but Justin's got the three wins, which gives him the edge there. Uh, and just one point behind Austin Hill is A.J. Allmendinger. So uh, it's a pretty tight points battle here as well. Okay, now the championship race at Phoenix Raceway is just two weeks away, and drivers are starting to feel that heat as the time is starting to run short. Uh, Josh Berry, of course, clinched his spot in the uh, championship four with his win at Las Vegas. So now the remaining seven playoff drivers will have to bring their A game this weekend to Homestead Miami Speedway. Uh, to clinch their spot before the race at Martinsville Speedway next weekend on October the 29th. Martinsville, by the way, will be an elimination race, so four drivers will be eliminated after that race. Now, uh, we've talked about it. Josh Berry's already clinched his spot into the next round. Uh, The others can clinch if there is a repeat winner, or a win by a driver who cannot advance to the next round. Uh, so those are the seven drivers that we've been talking about. Uh, but being, uh, they also need to be 56 points above that third winless driver in the standings. The same requirements are going to hold true if that new win comes from among Noah Gregson or Ty Gibbs. Noah Gregson and Ty Gibbs both need that win to get in. If there's a new winner from Justin Algauer or another winless driver lower in the standings but still eligible to advance to that next round, Noah Gregson uh, could get that spot. Uh, But he would clinch by being 56 points above the second winless driver in the standings. Uh, Again, all seven drivers are going to need a win to get in to that next round, uh, and they're all going to be racing for it as well. Noah Gregson, Ty Gibbs, Justin Algauer, Austin Hill, A.J. Allmendinger, Brandon Jones, and Sam Mayer are looking to clinch those spots. Well, and I think you mentioned how tight the points are. Right there tells you none of them can clinch on points without help from another driver, so they can't any of them do it on their own yet. And that sets the stage there in South Beach. Uh, Again, I mentioned Miami Homestead used to be the season finale. Now it's in the middle of round eight. So they kicked off their playoffs in round eight last weekend at Las Vegas with the race that saw junior motorsports driver Josh Berry take that checkered flag and secure his spot into the championship round of four for the first time in his career. Now as they head to Homestead, Miami for the Contender Boats 300, They'll keep the playoffs rolling. And that grid will start on Saturday, part of the doubleheader, the uh, 4.30 p.m. Eastern on the USA Network, as well as MRN and Sirius XM Radio. The 1.5-mile South Florida track has produced a total of 21 different race winners 
and 20 different pole winners in 28 races. And I find that very interesting, uh, all but seven. The first race held at Homestead, Miami. That was an Xfinity Series event back on November 5th, 1995. The inaugural Xfinity Series race won by NASCAR Hall of Famer Dale Jarrett. He was driving a Ford, clocked in at 92.229 miles per hour. Names we haven't heard in a while, though, Casey Mears. He set the track's qualifying record in 2004, the speed of 177.936 miles per hour, while Tyler Reddick set the race record with a speed of 140.515 miles per hour in 2018. Joe Nemechek has posted the most wins at the track of three, along with the most lead lap finishes of 11, and laps completed at 3,514. Only five races have been won from the pole or first starting position. Most recently, that was done by Harrison Burton with his win in 2020. Now, this will be the first time that Homestead Miami serves as this fifth race in the NASCAR Xfinity Series playoffs. During the playoff era, which runs from 2016 to 2022, the track was the home to the championship race from 2016 to 2019. Daniel Suarez in 2016, William Byron in 2017, and then Tyler Reddick in 18 and 19 took the checkered flags in those seasons. In the 2020 and 21 seasons, the 1.5-mile track was not featured in the postseason but was on the regular season schedule. Now, they will kick off their weekend here at Xfinity Series with practice. That'll come Friday, October 21st, 6.05 p.m. Eastern, followed by qualifying at 6.35 p.m. Eastern. That'll be on the USA Network as well as streamed on the NBC Sports app, so you can follow along with it. Okay. Next up, we have the NASCAR Cup Series racing their second race of the round of eight, uh, and that is the District. Vodka 400 at Homestead Miami Speedway. This one is on Sunday, October the 23rd. Uh, they they should uh, start sometime around 2.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, pre-race coverage will be on NBC starting at 1.30 p.m. as well as radio coverage on MRN and Sirius XM NASCAR radio. They'll be racing a distance of 400.5 miles over 267 laps. Uh, first stage is 80 laps, and uh, that will end on lap 80. Second stage is 85 laps, ending on lap 165. And the last stage is 102 laps, ending on lap 267. So we always have a lot of information here for the Cup Series. Well, and we lo- we left Las Vegas, but even here at Homestead, Miami, you can bet on some head-to-head matchups. So. We'll start with, uh, I can't believe they didn't save this one until Martinsville, but we'll go with it for Homestead, <laughs> Miami. That's Denny Hamlin versus Chase Elliott. That uh, was not the trip to Sin City that either Hamlin or Elliott were hoping for. Both had to start outside the top 20, but battled all day to get to the front. Now, Hamlin rallied to finish with a good points day as he finished fifth in both stage two and the race. Elliott crossed the finish line, though, in 21st and did not get any stage points. Although they did not lock their position spot into the championship four round like Joey Logano, they still are above the cut line in the points race. 
right now sitting in second. Elliott has one top five in his last three races at Homestead and currently fourth in the standings. Hamlin should be looking forward to Homestead where he has one win and a 109.9 driver rating in his last three races. That's one of the highest uh, ratings out there. Our next matchup is uh, Chase Briscoe versus William Byron. Chase Briscoe found himself a lap down early in the race last weekend out at Las Vegas. Uh, but in typical fashion, uh, Briscoe found himself near the front when the race was ended. Rallying from a free pass, Briscoe finished fourth at Las Vegas and climbed into the playoff rankings. Uh, right now he sits just nine points behind Denny Hamlin for that last spot into the championship four. For Byron, a 13th-place finish does not tell the whole story. He achieved stage points in the first two stages and then climbed the playoff rankings as well. He is three points ahead of Briscoe as he tries to battle for that spot into the championship four round. Byron has a win at Homestead in his resume, and he's looking for the number 24 to become the second driver to lock himself into the championship four round. Our final matchup comes from Team Penske, and that's Joey Logano versus Ryan Blaney. Mentioned Joey Logano became the first driver to lock himself into the championship race at Phoenix Raceway as he won the South Point 400 at Las Vegas last weekend. Now, Logano used fresher tires to pass Ross Chastain with three laps to go and then pulled away to the checkered flag. It was Logano's fourth win on the season. On the other side, though, his Penske teammate, Ryan Blaney, may have had the fastest car on Sunday, but spun out late in the race, which ended his chances of winning his first race of the season. Blaney now finds himself 11 points behind the cut line and looked to Homestead as that opportunity to bring two Team Penske's Fords to the championship four round. Okay, next up we'll talk about some of the stars uh, that will be making a... Uh, an appearance out at Homestead, Miami. Uh, and it, there's an extensive list of dignitaries coming out, and fans will not have to will look will have a lot to look forward to this weekend at Homestead, Miami, when NASCAR comes into town. Not only will there be great racing, but several other activities and celebrities for fans to enjoy. Um, I'm going to start at the bottom here. Uh, I'll take the first two if you want to take the next two, and then I'll take the last one. Um, Also renowned for Latin recording artist and radio personality, Alex Sensation, whose popular syndicated radio show is heard in Miami on El Nuevo Zal 106.7 FM, will get the party started at Larry's Hard Lemonade Beach Bash in the track infield. Also on Sunday, the Colombian-American is one of the most influential Latin GJs in the United States. He's going to perform his set in the infield at the one-of-a-kind 20,000-square-foot beach inside of Turn 3. The relaxation destination, the only one of its kind in motorsports, actually sits on a seven-acre spring-fed lake that spans the width of the backstretch. In addition to the live entertainment, the event will have unique food and beverage options uh, and water activities and more. 
uh, now, Allison Sation has his show broadcasted daily across the country in not only Miami, but also in New York, Los Angeles, and Puerto Rico. With more than 3 million weekly listeners, Alex Sensation's radio show has been a staple in the country's top Latin music stations for more than 15 years. Okay, now we have uh, yeah, Afro-Latin singer and songwriter Miami native Adassa will perform the national anthem before the command to start engines for the Dixie 400. And a well-known public address voice uh, for the Miami Heat uh, basketball team, Michael Diamante, uh, has been there for the last 32 years. One of the premier voices in sports, he'll serve as the pre-race announcer to introduce the starting field for the drivers of the Dixie Vodka 400. And then we got Natty Natasha, is a well-known billboard. Now, wait, 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 you skipped one. You skipped one. Oh, my, uh, Miami Heat. There we go. Sorry. Uh, another Miami Heat captain and three-time NBA champion, Udonis Haslam, uh, one of the most respected and beloved players and new member to the DoorDash family of athlete partners, is going to serve as honorary race official for the Dixie Vodka 400. He'll be introduced to the fans in attendance during pre-race and driver introductions. Okay, and and Jay mentioned it. Natty Natasha, the well-known Billboard award-winning Latin female artist who has taken over the popular culture worldwide, will serve as the honorary pace car driver on Sunday's race. Uh, October the 23rd for the Dixie Vodka 400 uh, in the NASCAR Series playoff race at picturesque Homestead Miami Speedway. Now, Natty will pilot a special pink Chevrolet Camaro SS1LE around the 1.5-mile South Florida track as part of American Cancer Society's Making Strides Against Breast Cancer Initiative. It's the 12th consecutive season that they have been part of the Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Now, she'll lead the field of the NASCAR Stars to the green flag in the Premier Series, second of three races in the round of eight playoffs. So a lot of dignitaries out there at Homestead Miami this weekend. Now we're going to take a look at the cup racing here in South Beach. Uh, we got groundbreaking uh, for the Homestead Miami Dade Motorsports Complex, which is what the track was originally named, began back on August 24th, 1993. The original configuration of Homestead Miami Speedway was a four-turn rectangular paved oval based on Indianapolis Motor Speedway's layout. The first race at Homestead Miami Speedway was the NASCAR Xfinity race on uh, November 5th, 1995. Mentioned uh, inaugural race there, won by NASCAR Hall of Famer Dale Jarrett and that Ford at 92.229 miles per hour. Now, the first NASCAR Cup Series race at Homestead Miami Speedway, that was held on November 14th, 1999. Inaugural Cup Series race won by another NASCAR Hall of Famer. That was Tony Stewart. It was in a Pontiac at 140.335 miles per hour. 
Now, the 2002 season was the first year the championship weekend was held at Homestead Miami Speedway, with all three of NASCAR's national series holding their series finale at the same track. The track would host the season finale from 2002 all the way through 2019. There's been a total of 23 NASCAR Cup Series races at Homestead Miami Speedway, one per season since 1999. That's led to a total of 14 different drivers having won the pole in the NASCAR Cup Series at Miami Homestead, Homestead Miami Speedway, and five have won multiple poles. Denny Hamlin leads that NASCAR Cup Series and polls at Homestead Miami Speedway. He's got three coming in 2015, 17, and 18. Of the 14 Cup Series pole winners at the track, three will be active this weekend. Mentioned Denny Hamlin with his three. Kevin Harvick also has one in 2016. And Joey Logano back in 2012. Now, a total of 15 different drivers have won at Homestead, Miami. Five of the drivers have won more than once at the 1.5-mile track. Uh, Greg Biffle has three, 2004, five, and six. And Tony Stewart, 1999, 2000, and then again in 2011. Well, Danny, Danny Hamlin picked up victories in 2009, 2013, and 2020 as they lead the Cup Series in wins with three each. Of the 15 Cup Series winners at the track, six of them are active this weekend, and three are active playoff drivers, Joey Logano, William Byron, and Denny Hamlin. At the top of that list, again, Denny Hamlin with his three victories. Uh, Kyle Busch has two, 2015 and 19. William Byron's was in 2021. Joey Logano's came in 2018, while it was Martin Truex the year before in 2017 and Kevin Harvick in 2014. Okay, now uh, we've been talking about this being the second race of the playoffs. Well, there's four drivers right now on the outside looking in, and so they've got a little bit of a hill to climb here as far as points. With one race down in the playoff round of eight and two to go, uh, the four drivers below the championship round of four cut line have their work cut out for them as they try to earn their spot into the next round. After Las Vegas, William Byron is six points down, Chase Briscoe nine points down, Ryan Blaney 11 points, and Christopher Bell has the biggest hole at 23 points down. Uh, they're all below that cut line. Uh, and they want to keep in mind only two more spots can be earned by wins, leaving at least one spot uh, left for a driver to get in on points. Now, Hendrick Motorsports driver William Byron is fifth in the in the playoff uh, current round. He's six points behind Denny Hamlin, who sits in that fourth and final transfer spot on points. And... Uh, He's uh, hoping to stay in that championship four round um, at Phoenix Raceway on November the 6th. In seven playoff starts this season, Byron has put up one top five and four top tens. He's led 102 laps in the postseason events this year and has an average finish of 9.3. Looking to Homestead Miami this weekend, Byron should be feeling pretty confident. The North Carolina native has made four starts at the 1.5-mile track, posting one win last year 
and two top tens. His average finish at Homestead, Miami, however, is 18.2. Stuart Haas Racing's Chase Briscoe is carrying the organization's banner this season in the round of eight of the playoffs, and following his top five finish to the open round at Las Vegas, has moved up from eighth to sixth in the postseason standings. He's nine points back from the uh, cut line, and in seven playoff starts this season, he has the two top fives, four top tens, and he's looking ahead to this weekend at Homestead, Miami. Uh, He's hoping to build on his series track debut from last season when he started 30th and finished 18th. The South Florida track has been uh, to Briscoe's career in the past, uh, and he has wins on both NASCAR Xfinity Series in 2020 as well as Camping World Truck Series in 2017. Uh, now, there's also Team Penske's Ryan Blaney. He's looking like he was going to be challenging for the win last weekend in the Cup Series uh, race at Las Vegas, but instead an incident derailed his day and now the North Carolina native finds himself seventh in the series point standings. He's now 11 points back from the cut line. In seven postseason starts this year, Blaney's put up two top fives and three top tens. He's led 111 laps, I'm sorry, 110 laps, and also has an average finish of 16.0. Looking ahead to uh, the Homestead Miami weekend, Blaney's made seven Cup Series starts at that track, collecting just one top ten finish. His average finish at that speedway is a dismal 18.9. The one driver that fell the furthest in the standings after Las Vegas was Joe Gibbs Racing's Christopher Bell. He was caught up in that Bubba Wallace and Kyle Larson incident, and now he finds himself eighth in the Cup Series playoff round of eight standings. He's 23 points back from the cut line, and Bell's 2022 playoff run has been one of the beast or famine. The Oklahoman has put up one win at the Charlotte Roval. He also has four top fives, the most among playoff contenders, by the way, and he's also led 157 laps and has an average finish of 14.0 throughout this postseason. Looking ahead to Homestead, this Sunday, Bell has made two series starts at that track, and uh, he's posted one top ten finish. So, uh, as mentioned earlier, these drivers have their work cut out for them, Jay. Uh, they do, and one of them, uh, try and recap here real quick. I know we're pushing on time, but Denny Hamlin tweeting a Twitter around that, uh, teetering, sorry, around the championship four line. Most experience in the final round with four career appearances in 2014, 19, 20, and 21. Looking for his fourth consecutive appearance after this weekend, one of his best tracks. He's got 17 career starts at the 1.5 mile. He's got the three wins, five top fives and 11 top tens. Average finish is 11, I'm sorry, 10.0, which is second best among playoff contenders. Led a total of 393 laps. Okay. Also, I just want to mention former champion Chase Elliott uh, is hoping to make uh, it into the championship board for the third straight season. And what about Ross Chastain? Uh, What a 
season he has had uh, and uh, hoping to make it into that top four at Homestead Miami as well. Okay, let's go ahead. It is time for our NASCAR Hot Topic Sound Off, and we have our fan from Racing crew all heading into the room here, or into the studio, I should say, and uh, ready to talk hot topics. I believe that we have Mike Orzel here right now. Hey, you believe correctly. Good to be back. Okay, welcome to the show. I know Andy's uh, also planning to be on tonight. Uh, Andy, by the way, is uh, coming home from work, and a lot of times he comes a few minutes later. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Mike, why don't you go ahead and start us off with the first topic while I bring in Andy into the queue here. Well, I'm sure you know what it's going to be, and it's going to be a spicy one. On Tuesday, NASCAR announced that they have suspended driver Bubba Wallace for one race, so it's coming race at the Homestead Miami Speedway for his on-track incident with Kyle Larson at Las Vegas. Uh, He intentionally wrecked Kyle Larson. That was determined from review of SMT data and the various sources that NASCAR had at their disposal Uh, I know Bubba Wallace had said he had some sort of a mechanical problem that led to the incident. NASCAR determined that was not the case based on the data they reviewed, and they have suspended him for the Homestead-Miami race. John Hunter Nemechek will be driving the number 45 car for 2311 this weekend as uh, Wallace sits his suspension out. And based on comments from 2311 Racing, it sounds like they support the penalty and therefore will not be appealing it. Okay. Andy Lasky's in the house. Uh, welcome to the show, Andy. Hey, thanks. Uh, how are you guys doing tonight? Doing real well. And uh, I'm going to give you first shot at this first hot topic. Well, I mean, I think that I think NASCAR got it right. I think that when you look at what what happened here, obviously, we know what led up to this incident. You know, Bubba got run up in, up the track a bit into the fence. And he was frustrated, understandably so. Um, you know, it was a pretty hard hit to the outside wall. Um, but I, I think that when you looked at, at the severity of the retaliation uh, and an incident that could have seriously injured or, or really hurt Kyle Larson, I think something had to be done, plain and simple. Um, we've seen some leniency in the past and other examples of, of retaliation and intentional wrecking. And I think that um, there are probably instances in the past where other drivers should have been penalized just the same. And you have to wonder if maybe that leniency in non-penalties is why we've seen some of these incidents in recent times. But eventually something has to change. And, you know, it should be noted that this isn't the first time that we've seen a penalty for an intentional wreck. Look back to you know, Matt Kenseth and Joey Logano, you know, Kenseth served a suspension for that. So um, I've seen some stuff this week about how this is unprecedented. It's really not. We've seen suspensions in the past for intentional incidents, and and this was an intentional incident. So um, I think a suspension had to happen. Um, I am really not an expert in trying to say how long or how short it should have been. But I think I said when it happened last week that, you know, a suspension was at the the very minimum that we should see for a penalty. And we saw that. So I'm, I'm going to give NASCAR some credit for, you know, finally putting their foot down and saying we can't have this happen. 
and you know they suspended him for a race and and maybe that's enough to to not only allow him to reflect and and think about what he might do moving forward but it's also a message that will get sent to everybody else to say if you do this this is going to happen to you so um I think it's important that this took place simply because um, when you consider the, you know, drivers getting injured and and some of the stuff surrounding the safety of this next gen car to have someone um, turned into the fence like that at high speed, it was a pretty severe impact on the left side. I'm honestly surprised that Larson didn't suffer an injury or a concussion because it was a hard hit. Like that was a, a pretty vicious wreck. So um, I guess when you consider that that's been such a big storyline um, in recent weeks, um, you know, I'm not surprised that something had to get done. And, and I think that, you know, I, I, I can understand Bubba's frustration. Obviously, he, he felt like he was wronged, but um, to intentionally turn someone into the fence going that fast is, is pretty severe. So um, in the long and the short of it, I could go on all night about this, but in the long and the short of it, um, in my mind, the suspension had to take place, and it did, thankfully. And um, hopefully lessons can be learned to where this kind of incident isn't such a big storyline moving forward. Okay, Jay, you're up next. Well, Andy's correct about several things, and the, and the first one I want to say is I think we will go on and on about it for a good portion of the night tonight because it is a, a very uh, – complex issue um and mentioned it it has happened before i believe it's been 12 years since the uh Kenseth and logano deal which at that time was a two-race suspension so the fact that nascar went this direction um as i said on monday night if they if they determined via the data that he did it intentionally and we're going to go down this road a suspension was likely to come I am a little surprised it was only one race. And with that, I know, Sharon, you mentioned this in our group, um, it was supposedly strictly about the on-track actions, not what happened uh, off the track or still on the track but out of the car. Um, There, too, I see it as why wasn't that added on to it? Uh, You know, Sharon, you were the two that talked about it on Monday night, anger management. And I know you mentioned that we may may see some other things from the team, or sponsors that dictate something, but NASCAR could have, as they have in the past, included something along with that. So I was a little surprised that there wasn't a little more. Uh, The one part of understanding I do have, and I think it was Mike that brought this up, that Matt Kenseth went down, uh, down laps, came back out, was driving around looking for Joey Logano. It was a premeditated thing. This was heat of the moment, immediately off the wall, turned down into him, you know, that seeing red reaction. So that might have been why it was only one race versus two. Uh, the other thing, and, I, and I'll do more on this on the second go-around, but and Andy said it, and I'm glad to hear him admit it, that maybe some other teams and drivers should have had the same penalty. It just hadn't happened yet. My hope is NASCAR stands on that no matter who the driver is. Okay. Okay, yeah, I think NASCAR got it right. I know I've been wavering on the suspension part of it, uh, but when I think about it and it, after they made the announcement, uh, a couple of things came out to me. Um, 
by having that one race suspension, keep in mind that uh, Bubba Wallace only earned nine points in the race at Las Vegas because he finished so far back uh, in the finishing order. Uh, the other thing is that he's not going to get any points for the next race. So in a sense, he has uh, it, the the suspension gives him a points penalty uh, by the nature of it, and the same thing with the monetary fines that we sometimes see see um, is that he's gonna he's not gonna make the same kind of earnings uh, with the race at Homestead Miami, sitting on his couch watching it versus being inside the race car. So he is uh, paying a penalty from a monetary perspective as well. So I think that uh, one of the hardest things for the driver, putting all the points and the money aside, is for them to sit and watch somebody else driving their car around the track. Um, the, The thing that's good about this, though, is that the reason Bubba was driving that number 45 car is because he was racing for the owner's championship. Um, and uh, I don't think that's going to sit too well with the owners of 2311 Racing, meaning Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin. And uh, I'm, I think that uh, uh, what I get from reading between the lines here is that NASCAR took care of the suspension uh, with an understanding that 2311 would take care of some other things with Bubba Wallace, whether it be a sit-down conversation. Well, he did say that NASCAR was going to have a sit-down conversation with Bubba Wallace in addition to the one-race suspension. But I suspect that uh, Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin are having that sit-down conversation with uh, Bubba Wallace as well. And we don't know exactly what they're going to do for their part of it, but um, I kind of get the feeling that there's the possibility that they may just send him uh, to an anger management uh, session as well uh, during this time that he has off uh, outside of his race car. Uh, I don't know that that's happening. It's pure speculation on my part, but I do think that uh, the organization management will want to do something to support their drivers so that this does not happen again in the future and that he can truly grow and learn from this experience. Uh, So, again, I just think uh, when it's all said and done, I think NASCAR got it right. I agree with you guys that uh, uh, hopefully this is a precedent that will continue. Uh, there were probably some other situations uh, where suspen- suspension may have been warranted, but NASCAR has made it really, really clear no two situations are exactly the same, and that's why the rule is as loosely written as it is. Um, they take it by a case-by-case situation, and they look at the individual situation. In this case, I think there probably was an agreement with the management at 2311, uh, we'll do this, and we'll, we're expecting you to do that uh, kind of thing, and uh, making sure that Bubba Wallace gets uh, the, I don't want to call it tough love, I guess, but um, the, but in a, in a good way, providing support to him uh, so that he does not uh, repeat the offenses. So 
Uh, I think that the other issues that happened off of the track, uh, it will be addressed within the team. Those actions that happened on the track are being addressed by NASCAR. So that's my hot take on it, and uh, I'll come back on the other side uh, with other information. Mike, your thoughts? Well, speaking of hot takes, there were quite a few from various drivers throughout the industry, uh, current and former drivers. I'm not going to read exact quotes, but I'll paraphrase some of them because I think they've got some interesting insight. Dale Earnhardt Jr. actually was somewhat opposed to the suspension. He thought it would have been better to address it with a monetary and or points penalty, and he highlighted the fact that 40, the 45 car for 2311 is still racing, not for an owner's championship, because they were eliminated in the owner's playoffs. However, they can finish as high as fifth in the owner's standings, and with John Hunter Nemechek driving the car this weekend and no points penalty assessed to the number 45 car, there is no owner's championship penalty that is coming from this incident. So it really doesn't hurt the team. Then again, it wasn't the team that committed this penalty. So I think I, I'm going to disagree with Dale Jr. on this one. I think a suspension absolutely was warranted. And like Sharon said, the points penalty kind of happens in and of itself where Bubba Wallace will not be getting any points this weekend. I'm not sure how his contract is structured financially, but any potential race win bonuses or anything that he would get for his on-track performance, he won't be eligible for this weekend either as a result of being on the couch. Joey Logano, he said basically that he, incre- he, he wholeheartedly supports his, uh, the penalty and he wishes that it was more frequently applied in instances like that. Interesting coming from a guy like Joey Logano, who does race very aggressively, but then again, Logano's been on the receiving end of some ill-advised retaliation as well, and he got taken out by Matt Kenseth, and Matt Kenseth was suspended for those two races. He highlighted the fact that this very well could have been a career-ending injury for Kyle Larson. It was haunting. If you listen to Radioactive this week from, uh, from Fox Sports, uh, Kyle Larson's spotter telling him, get your head back, get your head back, it highlights just how in the forefront of everyone's mind these concussion issues and safety issues are in this car. And to have an incident like this happen literally less than 48 hours after his teammate retired because of a career-ending injury, it shows just how serious of a situation this was. Kevin Harvick also supported the suspension, and he attributed some of the issues to a less confrontational NASCAR leadership style over the past few years. And he kind of implored them to, his words were, save us from ourselves, talking about uh, race car drivers. And you got to remember, Kevin Harvick grew up in the era where if you decided you were going to act out on the racetrack, you were immediately summoned a NASCAR hauler, and you were going to be face-to-face with Mike Helton and his mustache, and he was going to put his finger in your chest and tell you just exactly how you needed to act. And it seems like that sort of confrontational nature of NASCAR officiating has gone away, and it seems like Kevin Harvick would like to see some of that make a comeback and a little bit more of a stern, heady hand to manage some of these situations. And the final one that I want to talk about is Kyle Petty. Kyle Petty came down extremely hard. He said the suspension, the one-race suspension, wasn't enough. He believed that Bubba Wall should have been suspended for the remainder of the season. He highlighted that we suspend crew chiefs and tire changers and tire carriers for four races if they have a wheel come off the car versus if you intentionally wreck another competitor on the racetrack and then get out of the car and try and fight them, Apparently, that just merits a one-race suspension. Now, I don't agree with the comparison uh, with the Matt Kenseth incident, and I think that almost sets a ceiling, kind of like Jay talked about, where the Matt Kenseth incident was different. That was premeditated. Matt Kenseth was out there hunting Joey Logano with full intention of wrecking him. 
There is no indication that Bubba Wallace had any intention of wrecking Kyle Larson until the contact happened coming out of turn four. It was not a premeditated thing. So the, the ceiling, if we want to look at any kind of a precedent, the ceiling here in precedent is premeditated maybe as a two-race suspension versus the crime of passion, uh, kind of like the Bubba Wallace situation. Maybe that's just a one-race suspension. But the interesting thing here is where Steve O'Donnell said it was only for the incident on the racetrack and nothing to do with the, what, what happened afterwards, where Bubba Wallace got out of his car, he put his hands on AMR safety crew people trying to push them away, and then assaulted Kyle Larson uh, in the infield there. And Kyle, Kyle Petty said basically if he had done that on the street, he'd be in handcuffs. I'm not saying that Bubba Wallace should have been arrested. I don't agree with that. There's... There's been plenty of incidents with drivers getting into fights on pit road, on the racetrack, et cetera, and it's never involved the police. I don't think it should. But Kyle Petty's point is if you're going to say the penalty was exclusively for the actions on the racetrack, they should probably address, especially since Kyle Larson didn't, didn't come out and, and fight back. Kyle Larson very clearly was not interested in fighting whatsoever. So for a very one-sided attempt to start a fight with another driver, it seems like that should have been addressed. And I understand that the theory that 2311 is going to be doing something internally, but from an official capacity, I'm kind of perplexed that NASCAR didn't do something on their own to highlight that behavior in addition to the behavior on the racetrack in the car. So I'm interested to see how, how 2311 handles it, but I would like to see a little bit more from the sanctioning body to address the post-crash actions of Bubba Wallace and how he conducted himself in front of the fans on TV and, really poorly represented himself, his sponsors, and his team doing so. Okay. Andy, your follow-up. So I, um, I'm not sure that I have a huge issue with the whole pushing and shoving part. I mean, if this was – I'm going to be perfectly honest. If this was Chase Elliott and Kevin Harvick, this would be heralded and people would be applauding and celebrating it. So – you know, we've we've been down this whole, you know, boys have at it mentality for the last few years to where when drivers push and shove each other after an incident, you know, people love it, you know. So I don't know that we can criticize Bubba Wallace for being frustrated and upset after the incident, um, you know, and, and, and getting out and, and being mad and, and showing his displeasure with, with Larson and shoving him. I, I, the issue I have is, is the fact that, you know, immediately after being run into the fence, he right-reared the five car and sent Larson into the wall for what was really a vicious wreck, like like I said before. So that's the part that's upsetting and, and concerning is, you know, the fact that he allowed his emotions to, to wreck someone intentionally, it, which could have hurt him. I mean, that was a, a pretty bad accident in terms of, you know, a driver's side impact into the wall. So that's the part that I felt like needed to be addressed. And I think it did get addressed with the one race suspension, but, um, you know, I, I don't know that I have a problem showing the frustration towards Larson, a little shoving here and there is, is what the fans all seem to love, depending on who the drivers are, I guess, you know, so I don't have a problem with that at all. I think for me, it's really just, you know, what he did with the race car and that needed to be taken care of. So, um, I think that, you know, a one race suspension is certainly a good start. Um, and, you know, I think really it sends a message that um, hopefully NASCAR is willing to do this to, to anyone, um, you know, that does this. It doesn't matter if it's 
Chase Briscoe, Tyler Reddick, Kyle Larson, whoever it is, if they pull the same stunt, they should be suspended. And I would, I would say that about anybody. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that this was, you know, anything, you know, taken against Bubba because of who he is at all. I think, I think you have to look at it for what the incident was. and, And that was, in my mind, and I think obviously NASCAR's mind, it was an intentional um, accident, and that's what needed to be taken care of, especially just considering the severity of it. You know, thankfully Larson's okay. Um, glad to see that he'll be racing this week. Um, just an unfortunate thing that happened there, um, but just given the severity of, of the wreck, I'm, I'm glad that you know action was taken um, against you know, Bubba for this week, just because you can't keep having that type of incident moving forward. But um, like I said, um, I think for me personally, what he did outside the car, I'm not so sure I have a huge issue with that. It's really what he did with the race car that I took issue with. And and that was addressed. Okay. Jay. Yeah. I think there's a couple of lines here uh, that NASCAR needs to be careful with. Uh, when it comes to that, and first off, again, I say, take the driver, who the driver is out of it. Is any driver that takes this action? Um, and we've seen that over the past couple of weeks. So set that aside. From mo- moving forward from here, I just want to see it enforced consistently. And I know each and every incident and situation is the same. My mind started going when, it, when we talked about this of, okay, now if somebody does the bump and run for the win, um, is that considered taking a car out? I understand that's for the race win, not purely out of vindictive nature. So hopefully NASCAR will look at that and address it accordingly. When we talk about the off track, uh, the only thing with that that concerns me is when it comes to the putting the hands on the, as Mike said, AMR uh, safety official whether it be a NASCAR official or a safety official, any sport you put your hands on, I am really flabbergasted that NASCAR did not address that. That should not be left up to the team. Uh, As a whole, if it's anger management, whatever, okay. But he put his hands on and shoved off a NASCAR safety representative. So uh, not real happy that that didn't specifically get addressed. As far as, like Andy said, with the driver, we've seen that between many drivers, uh, many different levels. Um, wasn't a whole lot of, I want to say, no harm, no foul. I mentioned on Monday night, I am proud of Kyle Larson. I mean, he knew that Bubba was frustrated and wanted no part of it. The other shout-out I'd have to give is to Team 2311. Accepted the penalty, understood it, and supported it rather than fighting NASCAR about it by an appeal or trying to say, hey, we were justified uh, because of this, because of that, because of this situation, because of that. So I think there are some big gains to be made moving forward here, and hopefully this message stands and we don't see another driver suspension for another 12, 15 years. Um, I think the the question Mike brought up, and I I know I heard this from several, uh, Kyle Petty being the most recent, uh, that might be a separate hot topic of, the crew chief getting a four race when a driver is in a much more controllable position to hurt somebody and only getting a one race. I do think there is something there that needs to be looked at. Okay. Yeah. I, I, uh, I will say that for another hot topic, Jay, but, 
A couple of things that I want to mention here is that, uh, that Kevin Harvick brought up the Mike Helton come to the red trailer uh, conversations. No driver enjoyed that walk to the red trailer uh, to talk to Mike Helton. He had a way of putting things into perspective, and one of the most common things that I heard coming out of that conversation is that you need us a whole lot more than we need you. There are a lot of drivers lining up to be NASCAR drivers. So uh, you need to sit here and listen to what we have to say. And uh, when you leave this hauler, uh, you're going to have a new attitude. So, and Mike Helton had a very good way of making that happen. It was not a pleasant experience for any driver that had to walk to that red trailer for that conversation with Mike uh, Helton. And uh, he was a very big uh, I don't mean this in a derogatory way in any way, shape, or form, but he was a big personality and a big person. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of these drivers are kind of on the more slight side, and they never forget their conversations with Mike Helton in that trailer. So I do think we need more of that. Uh, and and uh, uh, I think that uh, any driver who thinks that they uh, have the right to go out and push another driver or shove an AMR uh, person (laughs) or not follow the direction given to him by a NASCAR official uh, has another thing coming. And they need to hear that directly from uh, a personality like Mike Helton. Uh, So I do do like that comment from Mike, uh, uh, from Kevin Harvick. Uh, The other thing I wanted to mention that I think was a factor here is that not only was Kyle Larson affected by that turn uh, into his car, uh, the innocent victim in all of this, and actually I don't think Kyle Larson was entirely uh, um, uh, intended to have that hit. It was such a slight hit on Bubba Wallace. I really think it was an overreaction on his part. But... um, I do think the most innocent victim was Christopher Bell, who is a playoff contender. Neither Kyle Larson nor Bubba Wallace are in the playoffs any longer, but C. Bell is now eight out of eight playoff contenders and has a hill to climb to be able to get back into um, his chance to be in the championship four. Uh, I know he got a win to get into the championship eight, uh, he's going to have to do that again to get into the championship four. So uh, I think that played into all of this as well. Uh, you may intend to take out your your anger on one person, but there was an innocent victim in all of this as well, and that was Christopher Bell. Uh, and uh, I know Christopher Bell said that uh, Bubba had apologized to him, uh, you know, in the plane ride home, I think he said. And, uh, again, at the office, uh, because they both work uh, with Toyota, and Bubba Wallace is part of the uh, meetings uh, that take place at um, the Toyota Joe Gibbs Racing. So uh, he was apologized to twice by Bubba Wallace, but that does not take the sting out of the hill that he has to climb out of to get back into the playoffs. So I think that was a huge factor on the decision that was made here as well. 
And, uh, Mike, I just wanted to say thanks for sharing uh, what some of the other drivers had to say about all of this. I found that uh, pretty interesting. So uh, what do you have to say to wrap this up? Well, Jay brought it up in his initial reply, and that's the issue of consistency. I've beaten this drum a bunch of times through various incidents that we've had this year regarding using your race car as a weapon. And unfortunately, NASCAR has been somewhat inconsistent with the messaging on that, not just this year, but over several years. Just a few incidents in recent memory. There's two from the truck series earlier this year. Carson Hosevar, right rear Chase Purdy at Indianapolis a few years ago. Ben Rhodes, right rear Christian Eckes at Texas. Both in the truck series, both incidents were not penalized. Chase Elliott didn't right rear Denny Hamlin, but he made intentional contact with Hamlin and pinched him up against the wall before getting out of the car. And I don't think they ever put hands on each other, but they were in each other's faces. None of those incidents resulted in penalties. And even when NASCAR did try and step in and give a penalty, for example, the William Byron penalty earlier this year, they were overturned by the appeals board. So... It may be time, and I know NASCAR addressed the rulebook a little bit after the Byron appeal went against the way they wanted to penalize the 24 team, but in the offseason, it may be time for NASCAR to put some more clarity into the rulebook where the Bubba Wallace standard is the standard going forward. If in NASCAR's determination you intentionally used your car as a weapon to wreck another competitor, you will be suspended for that regardless of the outcome. Now, I do agree with Jay where the water can get a little bit muddy where what constitutes intentionally wrecking somebody, the classic bump and run. I don't want to see that penalized. So that's where the judgment call is still going to be in play here. Is it a legitimate racing move that maybe went sour, Uh, the bump and run, or even something that's a little bit more egregious like Chase Briscoe – way, way, way over driving the corner at Bristol on the dirt race earlier this year. I still don't think that was an intentional attempt to take out Tyler Reddick. So even though they did make contact through, the, through Chase Briscoe's actions, I don't think that's a situation that should be penalized. But these incidents where drivers have every opportunity to do anything else but choose to turn their car in a way that's going to hit another competitor That needs to be penalized every single time and in a harsh manner until it stops happening again. So hopefully this incident is not just a line in the sand, but, you know, a hard painted line on some pretty immutable concrete that this is how it's going to be going forward. And don't play around with this. Kind of like the NASCAR putting their foot down about not messing around with the Gen 7 car. Do not put your hand on this hot stove or you're going to find out how hot it is. They've been pretty good about enforcing messing with the Gen 7 car. So hopefully they're going to get better and more consistent for enforcing this intentional contact, intentional wrecking kind of thing. Okay. Andy, what's our next hot topic? Um, Looks like David Gilliland Racing is expected to make an announcement here, um, probably about a manufacturer change for next year. Um, I'm kind of curious what you think about that. Okay. Jay, your thoughts? Well, I'm going to interrupt here and allow Mike to make an announcement. I know we started a half hour late tonight. So, Mike, if you have an announcement you'd like to make. Well, it is the top of the hour, so I encourage you (laughs) to continue listening to the show. But take a moment to go and set your DVR. Race for the Championship is on. The previous episode covered the the regular season finale at Daytona. Race for the Championship is going to start covering the NASCAR playoffs this week on USA starting right now. Okay, I already set my DVR. I got ahead of the the curve here tonight. Uh, (laughs) uh, 
let's go ahead and uh, respond to uh, the topic of David Gilliland Racing making a uh, major partnership and branding change for 2023 in the truck series. Jay? I'm not sure we can still consider this a hot topic. Uh, I think it's a warm topic. Uh, again, we've kind of heard a lot of rumblings so much, in fact, that I think everybody kind of considered it to be everything but the official announcement, which is now scheduled to come. Um, the impact will be throughout the next years, and I say years, because with Kyle Busch Motorsports leaving Toyota, this will become the development uh, tool for, or presumably become the development tool for Toyota a, as a brand. And I know we've talked about this, and we don't have all the details. I know Haley Deegan, again, specifically got referenced. Is she a Toyota driver or a Ford driver? Was she a David Gillen racing driver versus Toyota or manufacturer-driven uh, contract? Um, and we haven't heard anything on that yet. I think that one will be one that develops out of this final announcement, but... I think it's a good thing. I'm a little surprised that Ford let them go because they had recently, and I say I want to say three to four years that they've been with uh, Ford now, um, been their developmental program, and I thought that was a great thing that Ford was doing to mimic Toyota's. I, I mean, we've, we've all talked about that. Toyota has one of the, if not the best pipeline as far as developing drivers, and Ford had started to do that. And now letting that go, in my opinion, letting that go, back over to Toyota as Kyle Busch is coming over to Chevrolet. So Chevrolet is going to have that, that uh, avenue um, now, and it kind of leaves Ford out in the wind. And I think Mike put it with when we talk about Haley Deegan, if she's going to stay with Ford in the trucks, what Fords do we have with open seats? Xfinity Series, what Fords are open with open seats and what developmental program is it? There's not a whole lot, so... It's interesting to see to me, like I said, I think this has kind of been all but officially announced. Uh, so that in itself isn't really the hot topic to me. It's what develops from it, the ripples that we see following. Okay. Mike. Well, I see why Jay let me make my announcement for Race for the Championship because he knew he was about to take all the wind out of my sails for this one. Uh, he's exactly right. There's a lot of questions here. Haley Deegan is about to be in the same position that Chandler Smith and John Hunter Nemechek and Corey Heim were when Kyle Busch Motorsports was announced that they were going to switch over to Chevrolet. Haley Deegan, at least to my understanding, is a signed Ford development driver. So she's associated with Ford, not David Gillen Racing, not any specific truck team, but she's associated with Ford. That's why we see her, or we saw her last weekend in the 07 car, which is a Ford development program car when it's being run in certain capacity. When uh, Cole Custer or Chase Briscoe, or in this case, Haley Deegan, are driving it, that is a Ford factory-sponsored car. So Haley Deegan is now effectively going to be out of a truck ride unless she gets scooped up by Toyota, which I doubt Ford would let her go, maybe. I don't know. But Toyota still needs to find spots for their other development drivers who they lost to Kyle Busch Motorsports with. So we might end up seeing Chandler Smith or John Hunter Nemechek or Sammy Smith, for that matter, in one of these David Gilliland trucks next year. Haley Deegan's a big question mark. The unfortunate thing for her is she's not made a strong case that she's ready to move up anywhere else. She did okay in her debut in Las Vegas. Uh, I think she finished 12th or 15th. Not terrible. I, 
she ran all the laps. She kept the car straight. Hats off to her. Very nicely done. But in, we, we've covered this in the past. In her two full-time seasons in the truck series, she's not shown a whole lot of progress to merit anyone saying, hey, it's, ready, it's time to move her on. Then again, maybe she does get moved into the Xfinity series looking for a better fit, which brings up the big question of where. There are not many Fords racing in the Xfinity series right now. You've got the 07 car. That may become a full-time Ford development car, or SHR could bring back the double zero that they parked when Cole Custer and Chase Briscoe moved up into the NASCAR Cup series. That's another opportunity for a Ford development program ride. But it really remains to be seen where Haley Deegan ends up next year because as of right now, unless she switches over to Toyota to go with David Gillen Racing, she's out of a ride for next year. I'm not sure how this is going to shake out, but this is probably not the last time we're going to talk about it. Okay. Um, I, I agree. It's probably not the last time we're going to talk about it. Uh, the announcement happens officially on Thursday, October the 27th, but we're seeing a lot of uh, word that this is probably an announcement that uh, David Gilliland Racing is moving over to Toyota's for the 2023 season. Uh, this has been a very, very rough year for Ford. Uh, there's been a lot of losses, uh, a lot of struggles for Ford this year with the next-gen car, the SHR drivers are maybe just now finally getting uh, a feel for this car and, and starting to show some results. Uh, it's not where we're used to seeing Ford perform. I brought this up before. I'll mention it again here um, because I happened to catch this in my reading somewhere along the line, and that is that many of the executives that were at Ford are now working over at Chevrolet. So uh, they are in a rebuilding uh, process over at Ford, uh, and in the meantime, everybody's jumping ship and uh, leaving them with very few teams to work with in both the truck series as well as the uh, um, uh, Xfinity series. And you guys have mentioned that already, that there's not a whole lot of Ford teams out there. Uh, Cup Series, there's a little bit more, uh, but the whole thing about uh, the Truck Series and the Xfinity Series is that developmental process. So this is going to hurt them, I think, for uh, at least a couple of years, if not three or four years, uh, until they can get their leadership in place and get that development program built up again. Uh, There's a lot of drivers uh, that uh, are very talented, uh, but they're ending up in Toyota and Chevrolet camps versus Ford camps, uh, only because there's not a lot of places to go. So um, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. As far as Haley Deegan, uh, I do believe she will land on her feet. Uh, she had that 13th place finish at Las Vegas this weekend for her debut in the Xfinity Series. Uh, we've talked about that before as well. I think that her talent is probably more suited to the Xfinity Series versus the Truck Series. Those cars are very boxy. The aerodynamics are entirely different uh, than what they are in a uh, Xfinity car or a Cup Series car. So uh, I think that Deegan... Um, I'd be surprised if she stays in the truck series. Maybe she will, but I really think she's going to be moving on to the Xfinity series for next season. And I think there's a reason why they've been trying uh, different drivers in that 07 car um, 
uh, and uh, I, I think that they're uh, interviewing for who's going to take that seat for next season. So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I know, Mike, you mentioned maybe reviving the SHR-00 again uh, as an opportunity for Ford to uh, put drivers into those seats. But uh, it, it's going to be slim pickings. Andy, your thoughts? Yeah, this is this is going to be interesting. Um, you know, I think that from a business standpoint for David Gilliland Racing, um, with the loss of most likely Kyle Busch Motorsports to Chevrolet, um, to move in as being a top, you know, Toyota racing development uh, team for their, their program is, is probably a good thing, you know, for them to fill that void left by KBM. Um, certainly Thor Sport, you know, has a strong Toyota presence as well, but, you know, for them to come in and, and um, you know, help fill uh, the void left by KBM is, is probably a, a smart thing. Um, but it's a huge um, loss for Ford. Uh, they don't, you know, Mike and I have had this discussion where they really don't even have much of a truck or Xfinity program. Um, when you look at, you know, I mean, if you really take a look at their competitive teams, um, barring any unforeseen announcements, you've got the 38 truck with Zane Smith and that's it for next year. And then, you know, the 98 car, which I have seen where Riley Herbst is most likely returning to that car, but um, that's pretty much it, you know. And so to have one truck and one Xfinity car is is pretty bleak if you're trying to develop talent for the future. So I would love to see, you know, another truck series organization uh, maybe switch to Ford or, or maybe, you know, they, they somehow come up with, um, a couple of three truck teams maybe to to help you know make make it so that it's not just Zane Smith and and on the Xfinity side of things you know it would be nice to see um, maybe Stuart Haas adds a second car maybe Team Penske makes a return of the 22 car um, you know just just to see some competition um, you know from the Ford um, from the Ford Xfinity and Truck Series programs because they're they're pretty much non-existent at this point, which is disappointing um, from a parity standpoint. You know, it's nice to see Toyota and Chevy and Ford all racing and battling for wins, but in the Xfinity Series specifically, uh, we don't really see much of that. It's mostly Chevy and Toyota. So um, it'll be curious to see what happens. But you know, specifically to Haley Deegan. Um, Quite honestly, I thought her result was pretty respectable, I think, for a first career Xfinity start. Uh, she finished 13th on the lead lap um, in what was very much an uneventful race. That's pretty much all you can ask for from a debut. And, you know, what that means for the future remains to be seen. But, you know, I think it, it shows that she has some promise. And, you know, it would be nice to at least see her run some more Xfinity races moving forward. But um, I think... The, the real concerning thing, you know, with this potential announcement would be that it would be a, a pretty significant loss to Ford's truck series program. And hopefully there is some kind of a, a remedy to help fill that void for 23. Okay. Jay. Yeah. The, Andy said it pretty much there. Uh, great for Toyota and they've made that, well, knowing that that's the, what they do is uh, with their developmental pipeline. 
Um, kind of need to see more at the top level because as they develop them, they only get to keep a select few, which at this point they're apparently okay with. That is their plan, um, only having but five, well, now six, maybe seven Toyotas at the uh, cup level. I think it's actually six with 2311s, two, and Joe Gibbs four. But um, they've said that they're okay with that. They, you know, they take the absolute cream of the crop. Uh, sometimes they maybe miss one, let one get away. Who, uh, you know, that happens. Ford needs to step up, though, with the, especially with the loss of this. Um, as everybody here has mentioned, they don't have any kind of solid developmental program, and I think you need to at least have some or some teams that maybe aren't necessarily fully developmental designed for that, like Kyle Busch Motorsports was, but at least teams they can go through, and you just don't seem to have that from the Ford side. And I think Haley Deegan could be one of them. Uh, I know it's not uncommon to hear me disagree with Mike, but I actually disagree with Dave Moody on this. You know, he is one that has that same feeling that if you are uh, winning races and championships at one level. And that's where I don't know that you can say it is a level of truck series to Xfinity. And I mentioned this on Monday, Richard Petty uh, apparently made a statement that the trucks are an absolute waste of time as far as driver development. I don't fully agree with that of go that far, but it can be different. Uh, and we've seen that with drivers from the Xfinity to Cup. Can't be good in one or don't perform greatly in one, go on to be a seven-time champion in another, and vice versa. So I think the opportunity is there uh, if Ford has the equipment to do so. Okay. Mike. This kind of comes back to the bigger picture economic discussion that we were having the other day. We're all talking about, well, Ford needs to grow their program. Toyota needs to grow their program. But if you take a step back and look at it from the bigger picture economic standpoint, I don't know that they really want to. Obviously, they would love to have unlimited money and go out there and win races and championships and all that. But if you look at the current economic climate, a lot of companies, including auto manufacturers, are tightening their belt. And at the same time, a lot of their research development and promotional activity is centered around electric cars. So a growing a NASCAR program may not be a financial priority for them, especially in times where they're trying to cut costs and save money in the face of a potential economic recession coming. It's not really a great time to be a developmental race car driver if you're trying to get a ride in a lower tier series, especially a factory sponsored ride, because those opportunities may be few and far between for the next few years if they ever come back at all. The way the industry is changing may dictate that some of these development programs are going to go away and really never come back. We see Toyota trying to get back in the development game a little bit, going with DGR, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Ford is absolutely going to step in and and come up with another development program because maybe they don't see the need to. There may be further consolidation of the development program only to the Xfinity series or maybe not at all. I'm not sure what their future is going to be. Obviously, I'm not privy to Ford's long-term business plans here, but the assumption that Ford is going to try and hold serve with Chevrolet, I don't know. Now, they do have a very large market segment. We're trying to sell trucks to the public. The F-150 is one of their biggest products that they sell year after year, and there's really no sign that that's going to slow up. So promoting it in the truck series may still be in their benefit, but as far as cars are concerned, it seems like all the major manufacturers, not just the three in NASCAR, but all of them are rapidly moving towards an electric car future for all their companies. So continuing to build NASCAR with the eventual goal of producing NASCAR Cup Series drivers to drive V8-powered gasoline cars in competition may not be a priority for these car manufacturers going forward. So 
it's not a great position to be in if you're sitting on the outside looking in trying to keep a development program going. That development program might not have a long-term future here. It's unfortunate to say, but it's just kind of the reality of the situation right now. Yeah, you bring up a, a really good point there. Just as I was thinking, I wonder how much longer Ford will be in NASCAR. Uh, and, and when I say that in the truck series and in the Xfinity series, uh, I think they have a strong showing in the Cup series. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Mike. Uh, the dynamics of uh, the car industry is really changing very quickly and uh, this may not be a priority for Ford, which may indeed may explain why all those executives left uh, in between the seasons, the 21 and 22 seasons, and uh, why uh, these other teams uh, are moving forward. Uh, Ford may be on a different uh, roadmap, <clears throat> and uh, it could explain a lot about why we're seeing uh, a diminishing presence uh, within the uh, truck and Xfinity series. I would hate to see that happen uh, because I think Ford is a very, um, has been very good for NASCAR. Uh, and you mentioned the F-150 trucks. Uh, that's huge in the, in the, in the uh, camping truck series, soon to be the Craftsman's truck series. Um, I, I would be very sad if that does indeed happen, but I think it, you make it, you make it sound like a very real possibility, and uh, something that we should all be aware of. So, Andy, you get the the last uh, spot on this. I don't have much to add other than I I'll be curious to see what the exact announcement is, and also with an eye toward you know what um, the truck and Xfinity series looks like for Ford Performance next year. Um, I just think that, you know, as bleak as the programs are, hopefully they can find a way to put something together to have more than just one team in each series. But um, if nothing else changes, that's that's what we're looking at uh, for 2023 is potentially one competitive truck and one, um, you know, competitive Xfinity car, which which is crazy considering what um, Chevrolet and Toyota have. So we'll see what happens, but certainly something to keep an eye on as we uh, look ahead to next year. Okay. Uh, Jay, we've moved into your turn to pick our next hot topic. All right. I know we had a couple of them. Um, let's start with Josh Berry. I got, got the contract extension for Junior Motorsports, and I, I kind of put it as a whole for Junior Motorsports, um, being that we've heard Dale Earnhardt Jr. talk about not – wanting to pay for the charter to move to the cup series of uh, the change in their Xfinity program. You got Noah Gregson coming out, moving on uh, Sam Mayer, Josh Berry now, and Justin Algar returning um, and bringing in then Brandon Jones. Okay, Mike. It's, an interesting situation because obviously Josh Berry's done great things at Junior Motorsports. Uh, he got the race, uh, the race win last week at Las Vegas, which is great to see. Uh, he's a legitimate championship contender in that eight car, and it's good to see him coming back. The interesting thing was kind of there was almost a dual message here from Dale Earnhardt Jr. During the race broadcast, he had mentioned he looks forward to seeing Josh Berry racing on Sunday soon, and it was open-ended. He didn't say that he what team Josh Berry might be driving for. It was just the assumption that, 
at the level of performance that Josh Berry is able to perform at, he expects to see him racing on Sunday. On the other side of that coin, though, there's some of the comments that Junior, Dale Jr. has made on his podcast where he talks about the 20 to $30 million price tag for a Cup Series charter. He believes it's a bubble. He believes that it's not worth the investment, especially given the financial considerations that we discussed a few shows ago where teams like Hendrick Motorsports and Joe Gibbs Racing are saying that even being at the very, very top of the NASCAR Cup Series is not necessarily a good business position to be in. So as a potential NASCAR Cup Series owner, Dale Earnhardt Jr. is looking at it as saying this 20 to $30 million investment just to buy into the series for a charter before you even start paying for equipment, facilities, driver contract, all the other things that go into holding a NASCAR Cup Series team, he doesn't believe it's worthwhile, especially given the idea that you might not end up making money doing it, even at the very top level of the sport. So it's a really big, I don't want to say it's a contradiction, but it's almost a paradox where Dale Jr. is Josh Berry's best advocate. He's the one who discovered him from his late model program. Dale Jr. is the one who's responsible for Josh Berry getting into an Xfinity Series car, even though he brought little to no sponsorship with him at the time. And Dale Jr. says he expects to see Josh Berry racing on Sundays. But on the other side of the coin, Josh Berry's very best chance for racing on Sundays would be a Dale Earnhardt Jr.-owned NASCAR Cup Series car, which sounds like that's not going to happen. Where Josh Berry ends up, if he does end up racing on Sundays, I don't know. Obviously, Dale uh, Junior Motorsports has been a feeder program for Hendrick Motorsports for quite some time, but it doesn't look like Hendrick Motorsports is going to have any openings anytime soon, assuming Alex Bowman recovers from his concussion and is, is back racing again. William Byron, Chase Elliott, and Kyle Larson are also signed to long-term contracts as well. So it doesn't look like, unless something very unforeseen happens, that there's going to be an opening at Hendrick Motorsports anytime soon. He could do what Noah Gregson did and move on to a different Chevrolet team. In this case, Gregson's moving over to Petty GMS, but... That team is also full. I don't think Eric Jones is going anywhere anytime soon. He's signed to a long-term deal and has been performing extremely well with Petty GMS. Noah Gregson's going to get at least a couple of years to, to sink or swim in that 42 car. Hopefully he does well, but that's yet to be seen. Either way, Noah Gregson's extremely young. So if he does well in that car, we can expect he's going to be there for quite some time. And we already talked about the potential for the sport contracting over the next few years based on economic conditions. So the growth in the series may end up stagnating a little bit. As much as I'd love to see Josh Berry racing on Sundays, that may not be in the cards no matter how well he does on Saturdays. I wish him the very best, and I hope he's successful. He's a great person, great personality, and he's been very successful at the level that he's at. But where he goes from here is very much a question. Okay, Andy. Yeah, you know, um, it's exciting to see Josh Berry get the opportunity to come back. I think that when you look at how he got into the sport, you know, discovered by Dale Earnhardt Jr., um, it's pretty old school and old-fashioned from the standpoint of Dale Jr. hired him based off of his belief in his talent, and and he's delivered. You know, he's been able to win races, and, and, you know, he's punched his ticket to the championship four this year, so... It's um, it's well earned to see see him get the opportunity to return to that car next year, and you know, it seems like we continue to see the possibility of Junior Motorsports entering the Cup Series if it makes financial sense at some point. But there certainly seems to be an interest there, so you'd have to think that that if they did start a Cup team down the road, that that Barry would somehow be a part of that at least at some point. So. 
Um, a good decision, I think, by Barry to to return to the eight car. We know how good JR Motorsports is in the Cup Series, and you know I think that that team continues to position itself to be competitive. Um, you know I think Sam Mayer is only going to get better. We know how you know Justin Allgaier's veteran presence has been um, helping lead that team. I think you know Barry's only going to get better and. Um, you know, Brandon Jones, obviously a veteran of the sport. He's been around a long time, uh, several years anyway. So it's not like they're putting a rookie in the nine car. It is somebody that does have experience. So it'll be interesting to see if, if the nine car runs like it has been. Um, no question that, that Gragson's had a bit of a breakout season, um, seven wins this year. That's not something to, to frown upon. So it'll be interesting to see if Jones can jump in that car and, and, and do the same thing. So, um, <clears throat> JR Motorsports certainly is, um, you know, positioning itself to, to continue to sustain, uh, sustain its success moving forward. Okay. <clears throat> okay. We're at that time of the night. I'm going to go ahead and make an announcement. Uh, for uh, particularly those people who may be tuning in for the first time, we do go off the air at exactly 10.30 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, I don't want anyone to be caught off guard when we go off the air in the middle of a sentence or in the middle of a topic. Uh, we are going to continue to record uh, our conversation past that 10:30 time, even though we're off the air, and then that bonus overtime material is available as part of our podcast uh, via the player that we have available at BamforRacing.com. What happens is I'll go out on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is at Racing site, as well as Facebook, and our page there is Racing Blog and Radio. Uh, and I will let you know that when the podcast becomes available, at that point you can go to the player at BamforRacing.com and just fast forward to the two-hour mark in order to hear the rest of our conversation. So, again, that's bonus overtime material uh, for uh, everyone. And uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, continue in the conversation about Josh Berry and Junior Motorsports. I do think that this this situation with the charters costing uh twenty or thirty million dollars or whatever the price is these days um i a lot of people are gonna wait uh to find out if that's just a bubble that's gonna pop or if that's something that's for the long haul. Uh, personally, I think it's a bubble that's going to pop. It has to uh, with the current uh, situation with the cost, supply chain, and everything else. Um, they're, they're not going to be able to sustain at that as an asking price. And the best way for them to uh, for that bubble to pop is for people not to take part and, and stop buying. So... I think the days of the, the charters costing that much uh, will come down. Uh, I can't, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you exactly when, but I just get the feeling that, that that's not going to be sustainable. Uh, and I think Dale Jr. is smart in waiting and not uh, going with the charter at this point and going into the Cup Series. I know they have a desire to do that long term, and I think that they will. But uh, I think that driver teams uh, like track house racing, 
that went out and bought Chip Ganassi Racing so that they could uh, expand their race team. Uh, that was a very good idea. And I think we might uh, see something along those lines uh, taking place for Junior Motorsports. With regard to Josh Berry, he's already signed uh, in the Xfinity Series for that number eight Junior Motorsports Chevy uh, with Tire Pros as the primary sponsor for nine of those races. Um, and, and and I think the big thing for Josh Berry is going to be that Mike Baumgartner, uh, Baumgartner who is his um, crew chief right now, he's going to be moving to the competition director at JRM in 2023. So he's going to be getting a new crew chief. Uh, for that ride in that number eight for junior motorsports. Uh, so, and he's going to need more sponsorship. Sponsorship for just nine races is not enough. As you know, they race something like 33 races, uh, for the season. So, um, uh, I, I have confidence and faith in junior motorsports with Kelly Earnhardt at the helm and Kel Jr. Uh, both of these individuals are very, good business-minded people, and they will find a way um, to uh, make this happen for Josh Berry in the Xfinity Series. And I do think you guys have brought it up. This is kind of like Junior Motorsports uh, or Dale Earnhardt's uh, baby, if you will, uh, having discovered Josh Berry and brought him into uh, NASCAR I think that he wants to make sure that he does advance. He's a talented guy, and I think they're going to find a way, but it may not be through the charter system. So, Jay, what are your thoughts? Are you still there, Well, I think the the thing to look at there is what Mike mentioned, and I know Dion Hart Jr. talked about this with Noah Gregson. If they come into their car, Noah Gregson was not a Chevrolet-developed driver. They happen to last be with Junior Motorsports. He wants to bring them to the level where they're ready to move to the Cup Series. Uh, I think Junior is very much a supporter of NASCAR. So with that, of uh, he, yes, would like to go to the Cup Series. Mentioned when it talks about the charter, he said, I'm not paying that price. The price is up there because of su- supply and demand. If nobody's demanding it, the price will come back down. So with that, except where you're at and doing a great job of it, of being an Xfinity Series Chevrolet team. Uh, I know you kind of say it's, well, it's a feeder system for Hendrick Motorsports. I think it's more so Chevrolet, but even so, I think Junior would be very supportive of a driver getting the chance as a person to go Cup Series racing if it were a Toyota or a Ford. Would he prefer Chevrolet? Probably so. But there again, there's so many, so many seats at the table. So I think that they have, and when we talk about it, reading through that tonight, uh, preview stuff tonight, Sharon, four of the eight right now are junior motorsports uh, contenders for the in the eight. We know that Josh Berry has locked in. Noah Gregson, very likely to move on. It's not a guarantee as of yet. And that leaves Justin Algar, who's right there on the bubble, as well as Sam Mara as a developmental. So it's possible, we talked about it a few years back, Joe Gibbs Racing having four Toyotas, their four Toyotas, in the final four of the Cup Series. Junior Motorsports could have his, their four uh, teams in the final four in the Infinity Series. And I think right now, as you said, they're both uh, Kelly Earnhardt as well as uh, Kelly Earnhardt Miller, as well as Dale Earnhardt Jr., 
very smart business people, they say, we're not going to pay that. We're going to put our effort into the program here at Junior Motorsports and continuing what we're doing. And I think they're doing a great job of that. Down the road, I still, I think everybody does think that that move will happen. Like you said, there's so many things that are fluctuating right now um, to see where the sport goes and what it costs that it might be the right time to sit and wait. Or, as you said, uh, some kind of partnership or joint effort um, where you're not taking the entire brunt of the cost. Okay, Mike, your follow-up? A lot of this is really going to be contingent on the upcoming TV deal and the revenue sharing that NASCAR is going to have to decide over the next couple of years. We talked about this a few few episodes ago where the race teams feel that they need to get a bigger slice of the pie in order to remain financially viable and therefore competitive. And I think people like Dale Earnhardt Jr. and any other potential NASCAR Cup Series owners, they're probably going to take a wait-and-see approach to see what the, the long-term future looks like for if they get into the NASCAR Cup Series can it be a viable business opportunity for them? Right now, based on some of the information that we've gotten, it, it seems like it's not. So I think Dale Earnhardt Jr. is wise to pause his efforts to move into the Cup Series and take that wait-and-see approach. And maybe in the next few years, there will be a more favorable deal that is struck that allows these teams to get into the sport and be competitive without being completely dependent on sponsorship dollars. And like Jay said, with the supply and demand of the charter system, when that demand dries up because there's no other team owners who want to buy into the system, inevitably available charters, the price will come down on them because people who want to get rid of them, whatever team that may be, they're going to have to sell it for what somebody's willing to pay for it. And if it's not $30 million, if it's only $10 million, that might be more attractive to somebody like Dale Earnhardt Jr. who's trying to get into the NASCAR Cup Series. I think it's going to be a wait and see. <laughs> Josh Berry, like you said, is signed for the Xfinity Series for next year. So we know he's, <laughs> excuse me, we know he's going to be back in the eight car for next year. Where he goes from there, well, that kind of lines up with where these negotiations are going to really kick off. The deal comes up in 2025, so the negotiation process is probably going to start sometime next year, and maybe by this time next year we'll have a firmer idea of what that financial landscape looks going forward, and hopefully it's more favorable to encourage more teams to get into the NASCAR Cup Series and build and grow teams where good drivers like Josh Berry can have the opportunity to compete at the top level. Okay, Andy, your follow-up. Yeah, certainly would like to see Junior Motorsports make its way to the Cup Series, but uh, it certainly would need to be uh, financially um, lucrative for them to do so. And and certainly we've seen some stuff recently about how, you know, teams are are struggling to to make profit. So, um, you know, it may be a bit before we see that, but obviously any time that you can see growth and, and see addition in the cup series, it's a good thing, but, um, you know, certainly we need to be the right time for them to do it. So whether that's now or five years from now remains to be seen, but, um, to Mike's point, you know, it, it is possible that they're waiting for that next deal to take place. Um, you know, where it makes more sense for them to do it from a business standpoint. Okay. I was trying to find the tweet where I've seen this, but, uh, I was reading on Twitter, I believe it was, uh, that NASCAR has agreed 
uh, instead of asking the teams to pay for some of the uh, spec parts, that NASCAR is picking up the cost of that uh, through the end of this season. And I believe it was just through the end of this season to help uh, keep costs down for some of these teams that are struggling. So uh, I do think that that's a good thing that NASCAR is doing to address one of the issues that a lot of these teams are experiencing right now. And um, uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of conversation during the off season. Uh, about uh, changes to the next-gen car, uh, the cost of doing business, the TV rights deal, uh, the charter system. There's a lot of things that NASCAR needs to address right now, and uh, I see a lot of uh, time at the uh, meeting tables uh, where they can kind of work all of this through. I have confidence that they will work through it all. But uh, I did want to just mention that NASCAR is taking that step uh, to pay for some of these spec, spec parts uh, for all of these cars uh, and, until they can get some things ironed out. And um, I, I believe it's for the rest of this year. I just can't find the tweet where I read that. Uh, but I think that's a very positive thing that NASCAR is doing right now to help a lot of these teams. The charter system is a big one, and you guys laid it out very well how this is going to kind of come to fruition where that charter cost uh, has to come down. And Dale Jr., I think, is being a leader in that right now uh, by saying we're just going to sit tight until can, uh, the situation improves uh, before we talk about going up to the Cup Series. It's unfortunate, but it's the way it is, and I think it's a good decision uh, on Junior Motorsports' part. So that's about all I have left to say, Jay. Your thoughts to wrap it up. Well, I think what you were referencing there, Sharon, with NASCAR covering the cost of parts was the new rear end clip they're developing. As we talked about the rear end clip uh, being an issue of not being able to take a hit and give a little bit and causing the impact to go to the driver uh, with the new development of a uh, development of a new rear end clip. I think that was what they had said was to get all the cars that teams have now transferred over to the new clip is where they would help pick up the cost okay. of the parts and um, that. I think that tied into the uh, debate about whether NASCAR was concerned about safety and doing anything to make the change and help out there. Um, going you. back to junior mo- Oh, yep. I, like I said, I, I wouldn't, I don't have the, the tweet uh, right hand either, but I do remember reading that. Um, when it comes to junior motorsports, uh, I think that, you know, like you said, it, he's doing a smart thing right now. We saw that when 2311 opted to come in and that was their decision, Michael Jordan and, uh, Danny Hamlin to make that choice with what they paid other teams went, okay, well, if they got that, we're going to try for this. Once you don't get it, it's going to back down, uh, come back down to either the same cost or possibly even less. And there could be some uh, changing factors with that when it comes to, as mentioned, the negotiations for TV rights and how the structure of, NASCAR goes moving forward. Uh, so there are so many things with moving parts, but I think right now Junior Motorsports is saying, hey, we're, we're where we're at. We're going to stay here and we're going to continue to build here um, with what we got. In the event of when we're ready to move forward, we'll have even more key things in place, whether it be driver, you mentioned the competition director, 
executive positions. I know we, we talked uh, over the past couple months about some changes in executive positions there with Junior Motorsports that we felt was in line with moving to the Cup Series um, and may still be. You know, again, they might have a five-year plan laid out that we're only seeing year two or three of. Okay. Uh, let's see. I think, Mike, that brings us back to you for the next hot topic. Sure, and this is an interesting development here. It looks like, this is not confirmed, but this is from an article from Road and Track. It looks like NASCAR is getting ready to implement a wet weather package for short oval tracks starting next year. Uh, They didn't specifically lay out what tracks, but it looks like all short oval tracks less than one mile, with the exception of the high-speed tracks Dover and Bristol, will potentially have wet weather opportunities to race there, which will include the windshield wiper, the rear light, mud flaps, and rain tires. The details aren't exactly, like I said, this is not a confirmed announcement or anything like that, but it looks like it's not going to be a, it's raining hard, we're going to go run the cars kind of a thing. It's a, the rain has stopped, we're going to put the cars out there instead of worrying about drying the racetrack. So not racing in standing water, not racing in heavy rain or anything like that, but at least it'll help mitigate some of the rain delay issues that we've seen at some of these tracks. They can't, as of yet, they can't, uh, they can't run in on the higher speed ovals, the 1.5s and the super speedways, but given that they already have the opportunity to run in the rain at road courses, which account for six races on the schedule, and the one-mile or less short ovals, which will be about another half-dozen races, depending specifically on which tracks that they actually implement this at, we're looking at the potential of a third to half of the season potentially being able to be run in wet weather without having to worry as much about a rain delay. Okay. Andy. Uh, this is awesome. This is fantastic news, um, if true. And, um, you know, Mike Mike brings up a really good point. It, it wouldn't be in the rain. It would be on a wet surface. But the goal being that it would significantly reduce um, track drying time to get a race in, especially in the instance of, of a racetrack that maybe doesn't have lights. And so I think this is a, a pretty smart move. Um, as we've seen in the past, racing in the rain itself can be a pretty significant challenge. Um, but if you can go out on a damp or wet racetrack and, and get the race in, I think that's awesome. So, um, uh, also like Mike said, it would probably just be flat, short tracks, specifically places like Phoenix, Martinsville, Richmond, Loudon, New Hampshire, places like that. But, um, I, I think that's awesome. That's a step in the right direction. I don't think you'll ever see it at every venue, certainly, but, um, to re, you know to be able to bring it to to some of these racetracks and and have the ability to effectively just reduce rain delays you know I, I think it's pretty smart so hopefully um you know we'll get more details on this at some point but you know if this is true this is going to be a pretty good thing i think uh for some of these venues to um to not have to stress over uh track drying uh in the event of inclement weather Okay, Jay, your thoughts? I'm going to use a very key word here. They need to tread lightly. I am excited about the prospect that they're looking at how to shorten up the issues with weather delay because we all know we can't fight and win against Mother Nature, um, so to work with it. But I do think, and you mentioned Loud, New Hampshire. I know the speeds there are a little bit different um, as a one-mile track. Uh, you know, the classification of short track is technically anything less than a mile. 
Bristol and even Richmond, the, the speeds in the banking there have uh, bring great concern to me. I understand it's not going to be a downpour, and I think they've learned their lesson from, uh, I think it was Coda was the most um, prominent one that brought that to light of if you're running in full rain and puddles and everything else, uh, it don't matter what you got on, you're going to have some issues. Um, so I like the fact that they are looking at it and developing something, but I do think they need to be really careful about it. Martinsville would be one where I'd be in favor of it, uh, of testing it out for sure. Um, as a flat track, not great high speeds. Uh, I think they still hit 90-some miles per hour at the end of the straightaway, uh, or actually a little over because I think the lap overall lap speed comes out about 90 miles, so 110, 120 going through that corner. Um, but you've got to be really careful about that, and the fact that they are splitting it up into it, it would be considered what they've classified as a wet um, just to – Eliminate some of the time, like you said, the last portion of time that they use jet dryers. You know, if they can get the jet dryers out there and get it to a damp condition, then get the cars out there and racing to finish drying it up and still get in some competitive quality racing, I'm all for it uh, as long as it's working. Um, but like I said, I, I think they need to be real careful about it and which tracks they do it at. Okay. Um, I guess... I, I'm kind of intrigued by all of this as well. <laughs> Here's my fear, though. Uh, when you're most prepared for rain, guess what happens? It doesn't rain. And and in a way, I kind of hope that's what happens here. Um, we've had a rash of races that have been delayed, uh, and so I understand why NASCAR is looking at a solution to getting that race started much quicker uh, then the rain delay sometimes end up being uh, a, a couple of hours or more uh, before they can get started. And I like the way they're going about it. I, I will say that. Uh, they're not talking about doing it with a full uh, downpour of rain on the track and puddling and, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, they're looking to get the cars out on the track sooner. Uh, they'll still use the jet dryers to try to get most of the rain out of there. But instead of waiting a couple of hours, uh, 45 minutes, whatever the time is, for the jet dryers to do their work, uh, they're going to get the cars out there on the track uh, with this wet weather package, um, and uh, it will allow them to get started to rain, get started in the race uh, despite the rain. Uh, so I think Jay's right. I think they have to be careful which tracks they use it at. It sounds like it's going to be the short tracks for next season. Uh, the 2023 season, uh, and only in those situations where it's needed, but uh, teams will have the equipment available, which includes the windshield wiper, the flaps behind the wheels, rain lights on the back of the car, and the Goodyear rain tires. Uh, that will be Goodyear's part of this, is they'll have to make sure they've got rain tires available at those short tracks in the case uh, that they might be needed, uh, just as they do with the road courses now. So uh, uh, I think it's a good idea. Uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, the short tracks that they're talking about using this package at are tracks like Martinsville, uh, Phoenix Raceway, possibly New Hampshire Motor Speedway uh, is another possibility. So 
I, I think they're being careful about the tracks that they might use this at, but I think they do need to do something about the rain delays that happen and, and what they can do to get these cars out on the track. Some of these tracks don't have lights so that they can race at night if the race is delayed. At Daytona, I've been at that track where we've waited hours upon hours upon hours uh, because of intermittent, intermittent raining uh, that keeps the rain delayed for most of the day. Uh, and they still went back to racing uh, that evening under the lights. So uh, this is this is just another, uh, uh, I think, great idea. We'll have to see how it plays out, but it sounds like a really great idea on paper. And uh, uh, I can't. Uh, I'm kind of anxious now for the rain to come. Uh, I'm just afraid that uh, as soon as you pull out the rain, as soon as you take your umbrella with you to work, that's when the expected rain doesn't happen. And I think that could be what happens in this case. Mike? I'm going to join Jay on the pun train here. And I'm going to rain on this parade a little bit. If you'd come to me a year ago and said, hey, we're going to do this, I'd be all for it. I, I would say that's a great idea. I like what they're thinking. Let's, let's see if we can make this work. However, at this point right now, this kind of comes back to the discussion we had a few weeks ago about too much change too quickly too soon. And the reason for that is the safety issues with the Gen 7 car right now. I would like to see them worry about getting the Gen 7 car fixed and, and undeniably safe before they introduce another factor, in this case racing in wet weather, where they introduce another potential opportunity for these cars to be involved in big crashes. So if they get the Gen 7 car, if this new rear clip works out well, and they get the safety issues put to bed in the Gen 7 car, okay, then we can move on to the next thing to worry about. And if, it wants to, if they want to worry about racing in, the, in wet weather, well, that's a good place to go because I agree with you, Sharon. I would like to see a reduction in rain delays. But with what they're talking about for the, the kind of tracks that they're going to race on tend to dry very quickly. It's a very relatively small surface area, so it doesn't take too much time to dry the tracks. And they're also talking about they're going to need to get them 80% dry anyway before they can put the cars out there. So really you're only talking about maybe shaving 20 or 30 minutes off of the, the rain delay process there. That's admirable, and it's something I would like to see, but not at the expense of driver safety. So let's worry about getting the Gen 7 car fixed first, and then we can worry about rolling out the rain package, maybe at the back half of next season. If everything's working out in the front half of the season and everyone's happy with the changes that are made to the car and they feel that it's safe to try something like this, then we can move on to try the, the wet weather package at short tracks. But until then, I would say it's, it maybe pump the brakes a little bit here, and let's do one thing at a time and make sure that the safety aspect of the Gen 7 car is addressed before we introduce a potential safety problem with racing in wet weather. Okay. Andy? Yeah, no, I I, um, I don't I really have much to follow up on this other than I, you know, I would like to see this come to fruition, certainly. Um, I'm not in favor of of seeing full-on wet races on ovals. We've seen that even on a road course, it's pretty tough to do it. Um, but if they can get it to where they could at least run damp weather on some of these flatter, low-speed ovals, I think it's a good thing. Um, Mike brings up a good point. You know, maybe take it slow and, and do it methodically and, and make sure that, you know, that we don't turn this into some kind of a debacle. That would certainly not be a good thing. 
But, you know, if this is something that, that is successful and, and we can see work at a select few racetracks to help mitigate um, rain delays, then, then I'm all for it for sure. Jay? Yeah, I don't know if, if the uh, next-gen car is what is bringing about this even op- being an option with the uh, the bigger tires, uh, the undercarriage with the uh, diffuser, if that's what prompted them to even look more into this. I know in the past it's kind of been, even on road courses, it took forever to even think about that. So maybe there's some aspects to this next-gen car that have increased their faith in testing and trying this out but i'm with both andy and mike you know take it take it cautiously um bring in daryl waltrip uh you know he'll explain the vortex theory for you which i know uh some don't agree with i personally i do think there is something to it uh the sooner you can get the cars out there on the track and rolling the much drier and truer it'll dry up and be race condition versus you always even after the jet dryers get off they're, they got to race carefully because it's uh, uh, not fuel moisture, but a different type of track uh, once they're done that you got to get that rubber back into it. So if they can get that rubber back in while it's still under damp conditions and drying up, dry up that quicker and return back to race condition quicker, uh, I am for that. So I applaud the fact that they are looking into it and want to test it. I just want them to do so cautiously. So as, as both Mike and Andy have said, we don't have another issue of safety on it in addition to what we're already dealing with. Yeah, I guess I'm real confident that NASCAR is working with the drivers and, and they've got that weekly meeting with them. They're, they're coming up with solutions. They're testing their, their ideas and, and everything. I, I agree that they need to do this cautiously. I'm not trying to minimize that in any way, shape, or form. I do think that we want our drivers to be safe, and I think NASCAR wants their drivers to be safe, and and they're going to work with the drivers to 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 make sure that they're not moving too forward too quickly uh, with something like this. Uh, of course, they have to wait for rain to be able to test it, uh, which it might be a little bit of a challenge. Um, uh, but they are looking to uh, have some testing prior to the debate, debut of those wet, uh, pa- that wet package uh, for next season. Uh, but I, I hear you guys, and, I, and I'm in full agreement uh, that they need to move forward cautiously. They, they need to make sure that they've got the driver's buy-in. Um, and I think they've learned a lot from this season uh, on what not to do when they're talking about bringing something new into NASCAR and how to make that more, a little bit more seamless and uh, to keep the drivers happy. Uh, and But I think it does address one of the issues that they need to, to think about, and uh, uh, I'm kind of anxious to see how it works for them. Uh, and I like the idea that we're not talking about, uh, hopefully we're not talking about a full race on a wet tire or wet, wet package uh, that they put together here, but just something that's used on a short-term basis to get the race going more quickly. Um, and uh, possibly even uh, if it's just one of those light showers, uh, you know, it's, it, it might be, uh, as much as 30 to 40 minutes, according to this article, that they can shave off of the delay time to get those cars back out on the track, and I think that's a positive. So I, I agree with you. It needs to happen cautiously and carefully, 
uh, and communication needs to be, uh, you know, very seamless as well with the teams and getting the buy-in of the drivers. Mike, you get the last word here. Well, I like this idea, and I like that they're considering it. Uh, obviously, nobody likes a rain delay, but the thing we like more, even less is seeing drivers get hurt. Hopefully, if they're serious about going forward with this, they do some more testing with the, with the, the package. I know they did some testing at Martinsville earlier this year where I'm not sure exactly what the process was, but basically they sprayed Martinsville with water and had cars out there with a potential wet weather package on there, and it sounded like there were some mixed results with that test. Uh, if they are serious about going forward with developing this wet weather package for Martinsville or any other track, I would hope that they test it more with real-world conditions, not just simulations or anything like that, actual cars on actual wet racetracks, and they make sure that this is something that's safe and, and viable for actual competition. It's one thing to, to have cars out on the racetrack, but if it's not a competitive, entertaining product, there's really no point to it. Nobody likes a rain delay, but no one likes a lousy race either. There's been several races where NASCAR has thrown the green and yellow flag just to burn off laps to, to get to, to take race, to, uh, race time away because the track isn't ready yet. And it, I really don't want to see a situation where they basically they're able to put the cars on the track to burn off laps, but it's not really competitive because the race package doesn't really allow the drivers to compete. They're just able to safely make laps at a, a speed somewhere between a normal race pace and a caution pace. So this is a good idea. I don't know that it's ready for prime time yet. If, you know, if it rains at the beginning of next season on the clash, I don't know, unless they test this extensively in the off season, I don't know that we're ready yet to put cars out on a wet race track with at least what I've seen so far in terms of testing and development. I do like the idea going forward. Hopefully they're successful with it, but I'm with you, Sharon. I think it needs to be done cautiously and deliberately. Okay. We'll let that be our last hot topic for tonight, and we'll start our roundtable here. Andy, we'll start with you. Yeah, for me, it's a Twitter CB14 fan, and um, just want to say thanks for having me on. Good to be on tonight. And uh, looking forward to um, racing in Homestead, always one of my favorites for uh, a mile-and-a-half track. So it should be a good one this weekend. Andy, we were happy to have you here tonight. Thanks for being available. Okay, um, Jay? Uh, you can follow me on Facebook, Michael Hoosman, MoparMJ8 on Twitter and Instagram. I am not working this weekend, but there is some racing down at Why Not Motorsports Park, the House of Hook. So I might hop down there for the fall classic and uh, chat with our friend Chris Crichton, the dirtiest voice in the South. Okie doke. Uh, tell him we said hi. Uh, and thanks for being here tonight as well, Jay. Mike, we're happy to have you here too. Well, thanks for having me. It's Mike underscore O on Twitter, Mike double underscore O on Reddit. I'm with Andy. I'm really looking forward to the racing this weekend at Homestead. The mile-and-a-half racing with the Gen 7 car has been very good this year, and Homestead is one of the best mile-and-a-half tracks on the schedule. I'm hoping we get some really, really good racing this weekend at Homestead, and I'll be glad to watch it. Okay. I am Bam for Racing at Twitter. Uh, I'm sorry, Bam for Racing site on Twitter and Bam for Racing blog and radio everywhere else. Uh, including our website, BAMFORRACING.com, where we have our BAMFORRACING radio uh, player. 
so that you can listen to our uh, live broadcast or our podcast. So uh, we appreciate all of you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy doing this. And uh, we will be back on Monday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, for the review of all the racing that's taking place out at uh, Homestead Miami Speedway this weekend. Uh, I, too, am looking forward to all of the races this weekend. I'll get to sit and uh, see that on my TV uh, this week and uh, be comfortable in my own home here. Uh, so I think uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I too, like uh, Homestead Miami Speedway. I think they put on some great races. was known as a Ford track at one time, uh, but I think that's changed over the last several years, and uh, it'll be fun to see who wins those uh, three races between the Truck Series, Xfinity Series, and the Cup Series. Uh, the playoff races this week, and the elimination race for the truck series. Uh, they will pair down to four drivers after the race this weekend. So uh, we will we'll have a lot to talk about, I'm sure, on Monday night's show. Uh, and thanks to our Fan for Racing crew for being here tonight. Uh, we had a full house here for Hot Topics uh, with Andy Lasky and Mike Orzel, as well as our co-host for tonight, Jay Hughesman. Thank you guys for all that you do. We appreciate you. Um, and uh, I'll look forward to, uh, the, you know, wrapping this up again on, thir- on Monday night and our preview show on Thursday night next week when we preview the races out at Martinsville Speedway, a short truck. Uh, I don't think they'll be ready to do that wet package yet at Martinsville, but uh, it'll be an interesting race nonetheless. Okay, guys. I think we're ready to call it a wrap. Have a good night. All right. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night, everybody. See you on the other side.